Because there aren't a lot of X-Men villains who would just kill children. Exactly. Uh, Magneto's not going to do that. But she would. And so you're like, oh, here we go. Did you forget who you were dealing with? This is Cassandra Nova. She loves to kill children. She loves that. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is filmmaker Patrick Willems, best known for his YouTube channel, which has gone viral like five billion times with films such as What If Wes Anderson Made the X-Men, other parodies and pastiches, and also a lot of hard-hitting cultural and film studies analysis on blockbuster cinema. Patrick, how are you doing today? Connor, I'm doing great, and I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. We've been wanting to do this for, well, since I started this, because some backstory here. Patrick is the one who convinced me to do this podcast in the first place. It was him. So if you are a fan of Cerebro, you have Patrick to thank. I Yes, I, I deserve all of the credit, definitely. <laughs> uh, no, no, I mean, you know, this really came about because, Connor, you've appeared on my YouTube channel a couple Four times. years ago. Well, yeah, first. Yeah, like, if, if I'm, if I'm going to talk about the X-Men, I have to bring in the resident expert, and that is you. And after we did a video this past summer, you were saying, Patrick, we should do a podcast about X-Men together. And I was like, Well, because people Connor, kept commenting on the video saying that we right. should do a podcast about the X-Men. It makes sense. And I was like, Connor, I would love to. There's no way I have time. But also, you don't need me. Right. You should have a podcast. Yes. Like, I would listen to a podcast of you talking about X-Men. And, uh, and then I got to, you know consult about like what gear to buy and stuff like that yeah so if you hate the mic that's his fault too um I'm, i think i'm getting the kinks worked out it's hard to figure this out i don't have a recording studio it was just a really funny conversation because i was like i mean patrick who would even come on and patrick was like connor you know everybody <laughs> i was like do i yeah this like he was like you have two clients actively working at marvel comics one of them hasn't even right. done the podcast yet you're friends with so-and-so, 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 and so-and-so. You can ask so-and-so to get so-and-so. Like, and I was like, you know, I suppose that's true. You know, these days everyone starts a podcast or everyone is always thinking about a well, podcast. Well, that's why I was nervous, especially when people like Jay and Miles have been doing the X-Men podcast thing so well for so long right. that I was sort of like, is there really, and that's just, that's just the most famous one. There are like 20 popular X-Men podcasts. There's plenty. But this was a rare instance where I was pretty confident that I was like, Connor, between you, like your ability to speak eloquently about X-Men and your Rolodex, this will do well. And all I'm going to say is I have been proven correct. Yeah, lo and behold, it is doing well, which is really pretty. I mean, I find myself startled every time I look at the at the analytics. because it Every, every time I discover that a friend of mine who does not know you or even know that we're friends listens to the show it makes me so happy and that happens pretty often you should tell me about it every single time actually because i <laughs> okay i love okay. that for me and for you the thing that is really funny about doing this right now is that i just had tim on 
And Tim Platt is much like Patrick Willems, someone I have known for 15 years because we were all in the same freshman dorm together at Oberlin. It is a shockingly stacked (laughs) freshman dorm lineup. If you look at how many people were there with us who are now in media in some capacity, especially in like nerd media. I mean, like Tim is a sort of nerd culture adjacent stand up comedian. You are the YouTube king of comic book movie analysis and other things. I'm doing this. And Kendra James is the managing editor of StarTrek.com. So I I assume Kendra is going to be on the show at some point. Kendra is, yes. Kendra's finishing her manuscript for her book that's under contract. So she has a lot on her plate at the moment. But she will definitely be on in 2021 for sure because... She's the best. It's funny. We all kind of found our way to what we loved. And it, it's just funny because I remember us like at 18 talking about comic books in those shitty dorm rooms. I also specifically remember with all of these people, with you and Kendra and Tim, because in high school, I knew no human beings that read comic books. I was just alone in my high school. Right. Uh, no one else did. I got my sister into comics so I could have someone to talk to about them. And then I got to Oberlin and right there in the dorm were all of you. And and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, I can actually have conversations about the stuff I like with people that are like just down the hall. Yeah, it was wild. I mean, before college, I had my dad and then I had strangers online like i used to browse the uncanny x-men.net forums with the username revanche wait when's your dad gonna be on the show my dad is going to be on the show we are figuring out basically i have a lot of guests lined up for the next month or two when i hit a moment where i need to fill some programming i am gonna bring my dad on it might end up being more of like a bonus episode i don't know exactly how we're gonna do it He hasn't read a comic since 1996, so we've decided what character we would do, but I don't know when it will make the most sense. Dad, if you're listening, uh, which you will be at some point, come upstairs and tell me when you'd want to be on the show. We're in the same house. It's It's not hard for us to plan this out. I'm excited to have you here, though, because it really was my first exposure to, I guess, like modern comics fandom online was when I appeared in your video in 2017 about how to fix the Fox X-Men franchise, which turned out uh, not to matter because (laughs) it's over. (laughs) Thank God. Hey, they made one more movie after that video. As I recall, in our video, we begged them not to make that movie. It's true. The thesis of the video was, I love Sansa Stark. I don't want you to make this movie. And I have to say, I think we were right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't love that one. I mean, I just, I don't love any of them, unfortunately. I think X2 is fun for what it was at the time. I think that First Class has literally just the Magneto stuff is good. And then I think Days of Future Past is a good movie that has nothing to do with the X-Men, particularly. Yeah, it it's so weird to me how, like, in the early 2000s, when, you know, there weren't a whole lot of comic book movies to choose from, at least for me, the, the X-Men movies, like, mattered so much. Be- like, I, I couldn't believe they existed. I was so invested. And now, looking back, like, I haven't even watched X2 in, like... 
I don't know, 12 years. Yeah. I just, I like, I barely think about them. Yeah, I don't really think about them either. And it's sad because they were, as one might say, a cultural reset. You know, Blade kind of primed the pump and was like, okay, we can, most people didn't know Blade was a comic book movie, but it was like, we can adapt these comic books into movies and they'll do well. It doesn't have to be Superman or Batman. And then X-Men really kicked it off. But there's a reason it took Iron Man to create the hegemonic superhero industrial complex that now rules all cinema because (laughs) the X-Men movies are weird. Like they're just not quite, they don't quite hit. So if you agree with us that the Fox X-Men franchise just doesn't quite hit right, we do have, it's a great little video. I'll link it on Twitter in the comments on this episode and in the description of the episode. But we, um, we basically went over how we would fix it if we could. And, the key is there's an extended cut that's like 90 minutes where we just go on at length <laughs> for a very long time. And then last year, three years later, Patrick invited me to come back on his show because he was doing a piece about it was part of an X-Men movies series, right? Like across various channels. And instead of covering one of the movies, you wanted to cover the cinematic language of that first issue of Grant Morrison's new X-Men with Frank Quitely. Right, exactly. It was this uh it was a crossover that the channel Nando V Movies organized where we were all supposed to like make a video about like literally anything in the X-Men movies, but like we've just said, I don't have especially strong feelings about the X-Men movies, right. so I was like, can I not talk about the movies? Like Famke Janssen's hot. Right. Uh, but there's just not like, a ton to say. No, Ian McKellen's funny. Exactly. Like, and um, and my general rule is like with the videos I make is only make them about things that I like. Re- I'm really excited about and right. really have something to say about. And uh, and so if I wanted to talk about X Men, I really had to be like, okay, uh, we're gonna jump back to a 2001 comic book. Yeah, and it's funny because that really the Morrison era is the most fascinating era of X Men for me to revisit because. When it was first coming out, I was very resistant to it. And I'm saying like when it was coming out issue to issue and we were buying them at the pharmacy or whatever because we were in middle school and high school, I found Morrison's devil-may-care approach to continuity very frustrating as someone who had an encyclopedic knowledge of the X-Men and was 13 and crabby, you know, at that age. And as it went on, I couldn't help but be dragged along for the ride. And by the time it was over, I was like, this is the best the X-Men has been since 1990. Like, easily. Easily. And then, unfortunately, for a very long time, it was never that good again. And I don't think, honestly, that it ever was that good again until House of X, Powers of Ten. There have been good stories i think the mike carry run is very good i think there is a lot to like about the bendis era even if it wasn't for me specifically really i'm personally a big fan of the jason aaron wolverine and the x-men run yeah i'm mixed on that uh refer to the toad episode if you haven't heard that (laughs) one but listen i get why people like it the thing about x-men is when it's functioning at its highest level, and this is one thing that the current X office really understands, when it's functioning at its highest level, X-Men has a book for everybody. X-Force and the Wolverine solo 
are never going to be my book, no matter which team is writing them. That's not about Ben Percy. It's not about Sam Humphreys. It's not about Rick Remender. It's not about, you know, it's just that's not my wheelhouse. So Wolverine and the X-Men to me, I was just sort of like, this is a lot of Wolverine. It's a lot of Quentin Choir. It was just not, Twas not for me. In part because it frustrated me on the specific level of what I imagine we'll be talking about a lot in this episode, which is that I think the writers who followed Morrison often seem, I don't want to say not to understand because that sounds really condescending, but assuming it's a deliberate choice, a lot of them seem to take the ideas that Morrison was playing with in their original characters and just not carry that character through in a consistent fashion. Like they become a very different character from the one that Morrison created. And sometimes that's cool and works out fine. And other times it really doesn't work for me. That's just, I mean, again, I don't want to harp on this because I've said it a million times on this podcast, but that's just, that's my Quentin Choir problem. And Wolverine the X-Men was just too much of that for me. Right. I, I, I completely get it. But that's my point is there were always stories you could point to and be like, this one was good or I enjoyed this one or whatever. But I, I, to me, there are three golden ages of the X-Men and the Claremont into Claremont Simonson 70s and 80s stuff is one of them. And Morrison is one of them. Unfortunately, Morrison isn't quite as golden an era because the other books were not at that caliber at the time. You had Austin Uncanny, which is infamous, but at least is fun to talk about. It is, uh, Austin's Uncanny is the very first ongoing comic book I ever dropped, which felt like a big moment for me at the age of like 13. Yeah, I think I also dropped it after the Draco for a minute because I needed... I, I dropped it, I think, mid-Draco. Yeah, I needed a minute to breathe. And then Extreme X-Men, which was certainly one of Claremont's best since his return, but not his very best work, I would say. Mm -hmm. For me, with Claremont, I'm I'm an 80s kind of guy. I, wait, okay, Connor, you're the person who would know this. Is there anyone... Who, who really says, like, oh, uh, early 2000s Claremont is the best Claremont? It's all about the Neo. No. Um, but there are a lot of people who really love Extreme X-Men. And I think that while it has its weird down spots, I think it also has a lot of good stuff in it. I'm not a huge fan of most of what's come after. But, you know, I love the guy. Like, at a certain point... It's like when your favorite musician pivots off in a direction musically that you're not crazy about, but those first six albums are always going to hit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, like, al almost no artist who has a career spanning, like, four decades is uh, remains as vital, like, for the entirety of that time. Like, there's usually, like, I... I I recently did like this big two-part video series on the career of Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. And, you know, his stuff after, uh, especially after like the early 90s, is never even close to being as good again. Right. But that's okay. That that doesn't make the earlier stuff not amazing. Exactly. And every now and then in one of those modern Claremont runs, he will pull out a story or an issue or a character beat that is just fabulous. And so... 
you know, by all means, let him keep doing weird stuff when he wants to. But the third golden era that is a true golden era like the 80s to me is the one we're in right now, which is extremely exciting. And I never thought that the X-Men could get there again. People say it's just because they got the movie rights back, but I don't think that that's what it is because Hickman has been pitching this concept for a long time. I want to say since 2016-ish is what people are saying. Now, maybe getting the movie rights back encouraged corporate to to approve a big relaunch. I have no idea, but I think it's just serendipitous timing all around. The X-Men are being merchandised again. The X-Men are seen as valuable IP for Marvel Disney now. And at the same time, someone with a vision for the X-Men that is vaster than anything that's been done in 30 years is in the driver's seat and has amassed a team of writers who are just running this thing like a luxury sports car. I mean, I can't, it's a great ride. You know what I mean? I can just say this. At no point in my life have I ever read this many X books at the same time. Same. Same. I'm reading all of them. (laughs) And there's about to be more. Yeah. And I'll buy those too. Totally. I mean, I... I'm always behind on comics, but uh, over over Christmas, I took some time off from work, and I finally caught up on... Okay, actually, you, you're the person to know, because you've, you've spoken to the people who uh, put it together. Um, Is it Ten of Swords, Cross of Swords? What do you call it? It's Ten of Swords. Like the tarot card. Correct. And if you would like a postmortem on Ten of Swords, you should listen to the Opal Luna Saturnine episode featuring Teeny Howard, which is great. I've been saving that for now that for I when you read, read it, it. no that makes sense yeah, yeah. yeah but I, I will say i read it the whole thing in like a couple days over christmas yeah and uh I, I got all 22 parts and i had the time of my life it ruled i couldn't believe that like i was this invested in an an x-men crossover with this many titles yeah i i fully get that that kind of wacky excalibur story is exactly my thing so i understand that it's you know i'm biased on that level but i think it's easily the best franchise-wide crossover x-men event since inferno maybe certainly since messiah complex i can't think of anything post inferno pre ten of swords besides messiah complex that i would rank anywhere in the same tier it's a momentous achievement it's 22 parts that fit seamlessly together it's so many different writers fitting seamlessly together in an event and people are like oh it's not seamless the tone shifts all the time like that's the point though it's a you're in you're in other world you're supposed to be disarmed and disquieted that's it's you're in the right. you know also, but it, it would have been weird if like the hellions issues had the same tone as right like, exactly the as, x-force issues right i loved it i'm glad you loved it i can't wait for the hardcover which was supposed to arrive this week but has been delayed a month which i'm bummed about <sighs> but in any case we are here to take it back which it feels sick to be like to a classic story but i was just talking to somebody who wasn't born yet when he is for extinction came out Oh, my God. Well, it was 20 years ago now. Yeah. Which is crazy. The summer of 2001. Yeah, but, like, we are 33. So, like, it does make sense. I know. But I I remember, like, the summer between 7th and 8th grade. I remember it so vividly, like, reading those first three issues in particular. I think there is something very 
specific and strange. It's like a kismet thing that new X-Men started right before 9-11 happened and then ran through all the fallout. Well, I also remember just how just I literally thinking on 9-11, me like, I don't know, like age 13 or whatever, about new X-Men 115. And I was like, about Genosha. I just read a comic where the the imagery looked exactly like what I'm watching on the news. Yeah, and I honestly think that if it had been a couple months later, that plot could not have happened in the comic. Oh yeah, especially when you when you look at how like Marvel put such an effort into like responding to 9/11. Correct. They would not have published that. No, it's wild because it's the defining X Men story of that decade, and it only exists because. It happened right before that real world tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I remember that, you know, it's bizarre because you're you're watching a character like Emma Frost process her survivor's guilt at the same time that, I mean, I was growing up in Westchester <laughs> myself. I mean, they're all in Westchester talking about Genosha. And we were all in Westchester talking about 9-11 and how many of my classmates' parents had been in the building and things like that that were not... Oh, my God. Yeah, it was not great. Not to dwell on 9-11, because that's not a super fun podcast topic, but it is just one of those things that feels... It feels like... And this is me getting very Grant Morrison-y, but it just sort of feels like Morrison tapped into some zeitgeist thing. Like, almost like could feel that violence was coming or something. I mean, that is kind of the Morrison thing, you know? Yeah. They love doing spells. And yeah, they're like a weird mystic. Into... So, yeah. I'm like, if this is something you saw in a dream, I wouldn't be shocked, you know? But uh, we are here to talk about Cassandra Nova. To my mind, the only truly great X-Men villain created after about 1991, which is kind of remarkable because there have been a lot of stories since then. And I don't think any new character introduced as a bad guy after that point has ever really hit the way that those Claremont villains do or the Simonson ones from X-Factor. It feels sort of like that's when the pantheon of rogues was really established. And the only one who I think has ever succeeded in becoming a star in that firmament is Cassandra Nova, who is the initial antagonist of Grant Morrison's new X-Men, sets the tone for the run immediately with the largest scale and most devastating genocide against mutant kind ever before or since and is really fucking scary in a way that x-men villains didn't used to be i think that especially in the 90s characters like apocalypse and mr sinister had become extreme in that 90s way but they didn't evoke fear in me the way that reading about Cassandra Nova made me uncomfortable it set me on edge it made me feel like unsafe as I was reading it the way that a horror novel does I'd love to hear about your backstory generally with the X-Men what brought you to these characters what 
has made you love them so much in an ongoing way throughout your life and why you wanted to talk about Cassandra today. I would love to talk about that. And this feels like a really great time to uh, lose absolutely all of my credibility on this show. Trapped you. Trapped you. No, no. I I, I knew this was coming. Um, I will admit right now, I have only ever read small portions of the Claremont run. SMH. I will say. Connor, SMH, Patrick. I know. I Are know. you buying the say, omnibuses that they're reprinting? Because they're really great. Connor? Connor? I have omnibuy. That's the word, right? It probably is, yes. Yeah. One through three on my shelf. Okay, well, it's time to read them. I, yes, I, I, I have begun. I am, because I, I basically had only ever read, and, and, and still up to now, only read up through the John Byrne stuff. Uh-huh. Because for a long time, like, I know you grew up in a house where your dad had all the issues. Yeah, I was lucky. Yeah, like, I, they, they weren't really collected, uh, I didn't have like an easy way. I, I I would read about them. I would read synopses of them online. The only options you really had for post Dark Phoenix were there were trades of a couple specific events. Exactly. There was a From the Ashes trade of like Scott and Madeline's courtship and wedding. Then there was a Mutant Massacre trade. Mm-hmm. Then there was a Fall of the Mutants trade. And then there was an Inferno trade. Right. And then there was an Extinction Agenda trade. That was about it. So if you wanted to understand what happened between them, you were pretty shit out of luck unless you like went to the comic shop and bought back issues from the secondhand box, which I did sometimes, or you had access like my dad's collection. Like I've talked to a couple people now on this podcast, like Annalise Spisso last week, who's an editor at Marvel now, about how she similarly had like a dad who was into the X-Men, which is just very helpful if you're before the internet allowed you to just read digital comics at the drop of a hat. Yeah. And it was a thing where because like starting when I was in, you know, I don't know, like sixth grade, I would read Wizard magazine and I had like various big hardcover like books about like Marvel Comics history. And so I would sort of like I was aware of so much of what happened like in the Claremont run up through like the early 90s and stuff like that. I just didn't have a way of reading it. And I always wanted to read it straight through. And now at the age of 33, I'm finally doing that. Listen, Alexander the Great died. Jesus Christ died. (laughs) We will do a lot of X-Men comic back reading this year. We'll make it a special year for us also. That's it. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about it. Um, and so, because I didn't grow up reading them, uh, I'm going to give the most cliche answer I possibly can for a millennial. My intro was the, the 90s cartoon. Uh-huh. Obviously. Uh, I watched the show uh, obsessively. And I, because I loved that it would—it is obviously not as good as Batman the Animated Series, but what it did do was have serialized, like, ongoing stories. Yeah. In a way that the Batman show didn't, really. Exactly. And I was really into that. I owned so many of the action figures. And what would happen would be, uh, or, or what would happen is that I would I would go to my local comic store when I'm like, I don't know, nine years old. And I'm like, I want to read an X-Men comic because I watched the show. And then it's, I don't know, 1996. 
and I look at the shelf. Right. It's like we're about to kick into Operation Zero Tolerance or whatever. What I see on the shelf is there's Wolverine. He's not even wearing his mask. He has like a bandana on his head and then bone claws. And I'm like, I just want him to be wearing the costume that I recognize. What What is is this? There was always some, you know, whether it was uh, like Onslaught or... Well, this is what you had me come on your most recent video to talk about was the late 90s in X-Men because it is a dark age. Yeah. It is one of the worst periods of the X-Men. I think the only... Well, I... (sighs) I try to keep it positive about more recent stuff, but I the only period that I think is a darker period for the X-Men than that late 90s period is the IVX period. Yeah, which... Uh, IVX, I, I the stuff skipped. that came immediately after it, the stuff that came immediately before it. It's just a rough minute. That post-Bendis, that is a wild, wild west kind of X-Men era. <laughs> I... I know, I... I... Yeah, I, I, I skipped that one entirely. Yeah. But so my actual intro to X-Men comics is a pretty strange one because I started reading ongoing monthly comic books. Like I got set up a pull list in 1999 uh, and I got into it uh, really through the Batman titles, which were doing No Man's Land at the time. Yeah. And so I started only reading the Bat books. R.I.P. Sarah S. and Gordon. Yes. Oh, man. I, I that No Man's really Land's a hard. bummer. <laughs> It, it is, but it got me into reading like comics week to week, and I've never stopped yeah. since then. And obviously, I wanted to to get into X Men, and so I was like, I was reading the Bat books, and I would like pick up Wizard and try to figure out what else was going on in comics. For the kids, Wizard was a magazine about comic books, which is a wild thing to imagine now when you can barely sell comic books in physical. But at the time, you could sell a physical magazine about comic books. Yeah, that would and they would break news and yeah. about the industry and yeah. stuff like that, and uh, you know I, I I would study that like what are like the like the like the, the top ten hottest writer like, like most popular writers list and try to figure out like okay what should I be reading, and anyway I started looking at like what was happening in X Men looking for a jumping on point and my jumping on point. Uh, which in hindsight was not a great one, was The Return of Claremont. It yeah. was Revolution. Revolution. Because it's being heavily marketed. Everywhere. And it just seemed like kind of a fresh start. And so I jumped in and I reading Uncanny and Adjectiveless. And uh, I often didn't entirely know what was going on in them because, you know, you're aware, you know, there was like a time jump Right away. It's bad. Let me just be candid. It's bad. <laughs> it's a bad comic. The six-month gap is extremely confusing. Claremont introduces like 30 new villains immediately. And it's very confusing. Yeah. As someone who was just entering this for the first time, I was like, initially, I was like, maybe this is just what X-Men is. I'm trying to play catch up and figure out right. what's going on. And all of these new villains, they always seem to be some new, I don't know, team with cybernetic enhancements in like every issue. Yeah, the Neo, the Goth, Telemore Vosges, Crimson Pirates. It's just, it was endless. So many of them. I will say, like it, uh, it, it looked great. Like Adam Kubert was drawing uncanny, yeah. and it, like it looked really good. But and I kept reading both those titles. And then you had the period like Claremont just kind of left fairly abruptly. Well, they yeah, they they realized very quickly that it wasn't working. Right. And then I think there was the period where I think it was Scott Lobdell came in and filled in for a while. Where there was a story where. 
I don't know, they had to go fight Magneto in Genosha because that's what ended with Wolverine, like, stabbing Magneto in the back. Right, and that's that's around the time Colossus dies to cure the legacy virus and exactly. all of that stuff. So I was, I really wanted to be into X-Men, but the X-Men comics being presented to me were not the best. They were impenetrable. They just were. Exactly. And weirdly enough, when I just, in sixth grade, when I had just begun reading ongoing comics, for some weird reason, probably because Wizard mentioned it, I bought uh, Marvel Boy, the six-issue series that, that was Morrison's first Marvel work, which was... You know, a, seems very weird for a Marvel comic. It's about, you know, like this, like, Cree asshole who just comes to Earth and just, like, kicks everyone's ass. Yeah. And it was really cool. And so right there I was like, okay, this Grant Morrison person is interesting. This is me, like, age 12. Right. And, uh, and so when I heard that they were going to come in and revamp the X-Men, and especially coming after the movie, which I was really, really into, and, you know, bring in black leather costumes that kind of— Way better than the ones from the movie, actually. Way better than the ones from the movie. But I didn't have the baggage that you did. Right. I had no attachments to continuity. Right. I hadn't—like, I just, like, I liked the idea of X-Men and the characters, but— the stuff that had happened in the past, it meant nothing to me. That's why I tell people to read Morrison first, actually, because yeah. I think that Morrison, I've said this before, is sort of the antithesis to the Claremont work. And then I think the current era is the synthesis, which is part of why it's so good. Like they, it, That's it's, a really good way of putting it. You know, Morrison is reacting to Claremont, but you can read Morrison alone and then go back and read Claremont and fill in sort of the basics that you didn't have. I just know that burdened with my Claremont knowledge, it took me a minute to relax and be like, okay, that doesn't quite jive with whatever story from 1986, but I need to just let it go. You know what I mean? If it doesn't serve the story, and this is what I learned as I grew older and as I came to understand more about storytelling, which is if it doesn't serve the story, then the continuity is not useful. Right. As long as you're not nakedly throwing out what came before because it is a shared world saying it doesn't matter that this character died don't worry about it they're here somehow don't worry too much about it is mm -hmm. i think a skill that it's valuable to internalize as a comics reader so that was the morrison thing or like lorna dane calling magneto daddy in her psychotic break like that wigged me out at first because i was like the whole point is that she's not really his kid but then it's like you know what who cares no one's done anything interesting with lorna dane since like 1993 and see it meant nothing to me when i read that issue right but I had it took no me a while to wrap my brain around and i was like okay whatever she's his daughter now tell a story and then of course the story got told in austin but uh, as yeah. i've said as i've said probably the best part of his run is the bizarre choices he makes with Lorna because at least it's a decision someone was making with the character when so often she's just right. kind of been around. So Connor, I, I have to ask, yeah. uh, as some, like as someone, you know, with your attachment to X-Men and your encyclopedic knowledge of X-Men, how did you feel about just wiping out 16 million mutants in issue two? I was stressed. I'll tell you that much. I mean, the thing about the Genosian massacre is until that point, there never had been 16 million mutants. 
That's a lot of people. It's a problem of scale a little bit. This is a problem that I think Grant has generally across their work. If there was one sort of critique I would level... I mean, Grant is one of my absolute favorite comic book writers of all time. Seven Soldiers of Victory is my favorite DC comic. Good choice. New X-Men is one of my absolute favorite Marvel comics. Animal Man, Doom Patrol. I mean, you could just you can just rattle them off, right? Morrison and Quitely, that's just my favorite team in all of comics. But what I would say is one criticism I would level of their work generally is that they love to take it to 11 in scale. Sometimes that's what creates the truly gonzo, insane, wonderful story. In this case, 16 million is the Holocaust plus 10. It feels a little bit like Gilding the Lily. I think that Genosha could have had a population of 6 million and we would have gotten the memo. It instantly becomes the biggest genocide ever in history. And it happens in the blink of an eye. Right. And the other thing is, it's declared that that's about half of the world's mutant population. What that does is throw the gauntlet very immediately to say, that means that at the start of Morrison's run, there are 32 million mutants on Earth. That is a dramatic escalation from the status quo of the 90s, where I might have said there were 1 million mutants on Earth. That's the thesis essentially of Morrison's run though, right? That's why the first arc is called E is for Extinction. That's why Cassandra Nova is its villain because of course her name, Cassandra Nova, the new Cassandra, she is the prophetess who comes to Trask, a loser Trask, but the only Trask left, and says, humankind will go extinct within four generations. They are going to be replaced by mutants. This is it. It's do or die. Kill them or become obsolete. It is a prophecy no one wants to hear, much like those delivered by the ancient Cassandra, but it is a prophecy that is undeniably true. And that is something that Hickman has carried through really brilliantly into this new era, but it is something that editorial at Marvel after Morrison took great pains to try to turn into a false prophecy by decimating the mutant population, you know, etc. It does change the Marvel Universe entirely. It says, this is a real minority subculture. This is a real heritage that now is sizable enough to have a nation state like Genosha that is a real existential threat, if you see it that way, to the survival of humanity, it makes the mutant metaphor make sense for the first time in a long time. And this is this is what the writer Jeff Thorne, there was a lot of attention recently about sort of a, a Twitter thread he did about whether, you know, Wanda was right to decimate the mutants or more importantly, whether the mutants stand up at all as a minority allegory. And Jeff Thorne was coming at it from the perspective of being a black man who finds the minority allegory lacking. I'm not going to tell him he's wrong about that. On the other hand, as a gay Jewish man, I personally think that the metaphor is really useful and important. It's interesting because Thorne got at a very specific problem that is a real problem with the metaphor, right? Which is real minority groups in real life don't have superhuman powers that enable them to become gods. There is a reason to be existentially afraid of mutants. 
But then he also points out, and no one seems to be afraid of the thing. It doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, no, that's where it works. That's what makes it work. Because the fear of mutants is irrational if you don't fear Thor. The Avengers existing, the Fantastic Four existing, and not being feared this way is why the minority allegory works. Because they're not minorities because they have superpowers. Lots of people in the Marvel Universe have superpowers. They're a minority because they're people with superpowers who are seen as an existential threat. And the reason they're seen as an existential threat is because the humans who fear them see them essentially as the great replacement theory, which is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but the idea that you're going to be replaced. What Cassandra Nova tells them is, you are. That is true. The mutants are going to replace you. And if you're the kind of person who can see mutants as just the next step in human evolution, then that's not frightening. But if you're the kind of person who feels the need to cling to humankind being exactly what you are, then it becomes existential terror. It's very, very, very similar to the idea of preserving the white race. And I think that the parallel is strong. I agree that it's not perfect because no fantasy minority premise is going to be perfect. But I think it's essential that the fear of mutants is not just about them being people with superpowers. It's about your child potentially being one. It's about your grandchild potentially being one. It's about your child marrying one. It's about that. It's about the corruption of what you see as a pure bloodline. And so in that sense, I think it is an essential metaphor that works really well. I think that what Cassandra Nova does and why Morrison's X-Men works so well is that Morrison's X-Men makes it a real minority and shows you how the majority responds to a minority that is growing rapidly and that it perceives as an existential threat to itself. And Cassandra Nova, on some level, is a response is a manifestation of that hatred and she creates the most devastating hate crime ever yeah i i mean i i agree with everything you're saying and i think one thing that at least to me coming in to new x-men was so exciting about it was because even though i hadn't read all of the X-Men comics before, I was familiar enough with kind of like the, the way, like the the role of mutants in the world and especially reading uh, X-Men comics for like a year and a half up to new X-Men starting. And it did feel like mutants were always sort of treated as if they were like a relatively new thing. Right. As if humanity was constantly reacting to, like, this scary new thing. Right. There goes the neighborhood. Look who just moved in down the road. We were kind of stuck in that place for a really long time. Right. And then New X-Men, as we talked about in uh, the video from uh, from last summer, uh, really, like, it kind of just, like, looked at it, like, in a level-headed way and said... Okay, yeah, they've been around for a while. This is the world. At this point, you'll be used to it, but you may not like it. Right. It's a we're here, we're queer, we're not going anywhere kind of thing, right? A mutant town is a paradigm shift 
that is extraordinary. Morrison takes the kind of characters who would have been living in the sewers under Claremont as Morlocks, has them come to the surface and start their own subculture in Alphabet City. Yeah. And it's like, here are the mutant clubs. It's a great idea. Here are the mutant fashion designers. Here are the mutant DJs. Here are the mutant musicians. And here are all of the flat scans who want a piece of that and who think it's interesting and who want to be a part of it. At the same time, here are all of the humans who look at this and think this is the decay of Western civilization and it must be stopped. Right. And like to me, I didn't realize that Morrison was amplifying the scale of the mutant population because I didn't know what it what it was, uh, uh, you know, beforehand. But that's suddenly just like shifting, like the, the mutant, the fear of mutants to this existential threat of being replaced is just like it changes the whole dynamic of the book. And then Cassandra Nova is feels like such a radically different villain from what came before because it feels like most X Men villains were either other mutants with a different philosophy about how they should exist in the world with humans, or they were sort of, you know, human radicals who were right. trying to destroy mutants in some way. The purifiers, the reavers, the friends of humanity. Yeah. And Cassandra Nova, it's like, it's funny because on paper, the idea of her is so silly. Oh, it's 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 absurd. That's part of why I love it so She's much. the evil twin. She's his evil yeah. twin. It's a Silver Age plot. It totally is, but she shows up, and she is this just, like, primal evil driven by pure hate. Like, it it felt like, and this is going to be such a lazy comparison, but the way, like, I think what excited me about it as a an adolescent, like, like reading this, is that it sort of felt like giving X-Men, like, their Joker. Just this, you purely, like, monstrous being that can't be reasoned with, that is driven by pure hate, and will just do everything to just ruin, like, you and everything you stand for. Yeah, the important thing about X-Men villains up to this point is that they are lawful evil. They all have an ethos. The Hellfire Club are hyper-capitalist criminals. Magneto wants to create a new world order. At his worst, he becomes a fascist authoritarian. At his best, he is a radical liberationist. But he has a philosophy, right? Mr. Sinister is about as evil as you can get, collaborated with the Nazis, etc. But for the purposes of being a eugenicist and mapping the mutant genome... He had a goal. Apocalypse wants the strong to survive. That is Apocalypse's goal. And if you look at it, all of these villains came to live on Krakoa. These are all characters who you can find common ground with if you are a mutant. You look at the Mutant Liberation Front. You can see where they're coming from. You look at Mystique and her brotherhood. You can see where they're coming from. Cassandra Nova is chaotic evil at its most terrifying. She has no humanity in her. There is no higher rational authority you can appeal to in her. And she wants nothing more than destruction. That's all she wants. What's really brilliant about it, and the reason I think she has stuck, is, first of all, it's rare to have that villain be a woman. 
And I think having it be an elderly woman was so freaky to people, particularly in the way that Quietly draws her. Oh, yeah. He makes her very scary. When she, and and especially when she shows up wearing, you know, like like a safari hunter's outfit. She shows up in a great white hunter colonialist safari guide outfit, which I think is an absolute stroke of genius because, again, it underlines the theme I'm talking about, which is she has taken this schlubby white man descended from anti-mutant supremacists, but useless because their line has become useless for all their much-vaunted human superiority. She dresses as a colonist and basically says... All right, great replacement theory is real. It's happening within four generations. Are you in or not? Let's stop it. And she becomes, on some level, this manifestation of white supremacist hatred for all things that are not yourself. I think the outfit is part and parcel of that and is very, very intentional. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And especially the outfit really stands out because at the beginning, she's always presented in the jungle. Yeah, And so it's just a great visual because she's surrounded by these, you know, she looks like a big game hunter. And then she's surrounded by all these sentinels that are very animalistic and also and far more terrifying than sentinels have the scariest sentinels ever. And they're they're self-evolving sentinels. They are the ultimate in sentinel technology until the new Hickman era has driven it further into here's how we jump from that to the Nimrod that we always knew from the Claremont stuff is in the future. But how did we get there was not entirely clear. The thing about Cassandra Nova is there have been so many attempts at dark Xavier. There is an issue in the seventies where the X-Men fight like a dark shadowy like version of Xavier's psyche There is Onslaught, most famously, obviously. Deadly Genesis would play with the idea after Morrison, but I don't think it's very good. And that just is him being evil as opposed to a a different self. But there were always these attempts made to say, if Xavier is the benevolent headmaster, if this is our dad, what is it like when our dad's evil self, evil twin, is made manifest? Cassandra Nova is the most effective version of that for a couple of different reasons. One is that there is something so intrinsically bizarre about this old bald woman who looks like Professor Xavier shows up. What's she up to? Like, you're immediately like, who is this? Because she doesn't look like any other character in a comic book that you'd ever seen. Certainly that I'd ever seen. So there's that immediately. But also, she's not just... The other evil Xaviers are like Xavier gone fash, essentially. Mm -hmm. Cassandra Nova is Xavier's anima, like in the Jungian sense, which is, I think, why she's female, right? She is the shadow soul. You know, the Jungian concept of the anima is like, this is the irrational mind that lurks in the deep, that is overruled most of the time by our rational thought processes, but that it is important to get in touch with and not to suppress necessarily. And in men, the anima is seen as sort of the female side, which, you know, little sexist, but I don't know. You, we don't need to like your famous problematic Carl Jung or we'll be here for a long time. But it's <laughs> to me, it's that concept. And 
what's terrifying about her is that all of those other Xavier's are what if Xavier's dream went too far? Right. This is a creature born of Xavier's darkest self who wants nothing more than to destroy Xavier and his dream. That is all she wants. We learn that by her very nature, she is incapable of seeing any other living being in the universe besides Charles as real. Only she and Charles exist and everything else is just a way to get to Charles. I mean, don't they explain... Because it's... I think another fascinating thing about her is that it's not like she even had like a childhood or a backstory. She just like wasn't like in a sewer or something. She spent decades just like pulling herself together out of matter. We'll go to the character file in a second, but the essential gist of Cassandra Nova is, and this is a new addition to the mythology that Morrison makes. The Shi'ar believe in a concept called the Mamadrai. And the Mamadrai is the anti-self. It is the shadow self, the dark soul, however you want to put it in Jungian metaphysics or any other kind of metaphysical framework. In the womb, they believe, we battle with our minds on an astral level, the mama dry, and kill it. And that it is an important part of gestation as a living thing. And that is what happens. Apparently, we don't know what would happen if this did transpire because we don't see it, but occasionally the Mama Dry wins and presumably the person ends up being a monster of some kind, right? But we don't see that. What we do see is that because Xavier's mind was so powerful, even as a fetus, his Mama Dry was able to constitute for herself a body in the womb and his mother became pregnant with twins. And then in the womb, he sensed that she was a creature of evil and he killed her. And so she was stillborn and he never knew that he had had a sister. And then the cells that were her clung to the wall of a sewer for 40 years, feeling nothing but hate, believing the entire world around her was still the womb she shared with Charles, and knowing that she would build herself cell by cell and block by block and piece by piece until she was every bit a match for him, and then she would destroy him. And that's Cassandra Nova. That rules. It fucking rules. It is... That's so good. It is so good. It's terrifying. It draws on... You know, it reminds me of Seven Soldiers in the sense that Seven Soldiers is all about fairy tales, right? And the Sheeta mm-hmm. are sort of about the way humanity creates the Fae by imagining the Fae. This is a little bit similar. It draws on changeling stories. If she had killed him, Sharon Xavier would have just given birth to a baby girl. Right. And it would have been Cassandra Nova. Like, there's something very scary. Where's the Marvel what-if story about that? I would write that. Marvel, call me. (laughs) I mean, quite honestly, like, the cuckoo's egg situation. And obviously Morrison is very intrigued by the concept of the cuckoo's egg since they invent the Stepford cuckoos, which have become mainstay characters. Those are probably the only Morrison-created characters from New X-Men that I think have mostly managed to survive intact. Phantom X. Um... 
I'm so hit or miss on Phantom X. I really like what they're doing with Phantom X right now. I mean, I'm I was not. not crazy about Uncanny X versus Phantom X, like fucking Betsy and all of that stuff. That was like whatever to me. I'm just saying Phantom X stuck around. Oh, stuck around. Lots of them stuck around. But I mean, unlike Quentin Quire and as we'll get to Cassandra Nova, who I think got right. kind of screwed up by other writers or at least turned into something else. I think that the Stepford Cuckoos, apart from the retcons about their relationship to Emma, have been mostly pretty intact. But the horror of you're pregnant, oh, and it's twins, but it's not twins. It's your baby and the baby's psychic demon self that wants only to kill. Like, that's scary. That's just a great horror movie. It's Rosemary's Baby. I mean, it's that kind of, you know. And Morrison doesn't dwell on it. It's a couple panels. It's in the silent issue where Gene and Emma go into his head. Can we also just say that I think I, I was um before this episode, I reread uh, all of New X-Men up through uh, 126, basically up the, the Emma stuff. It really made me reappreciate what a kind of perfect piece of comic book publishing like synergy this was where... Marvel had decided they were going to do the uh, the nuff said month where everything would publish a silent issue. Every comic published a silent issue, yeah. Yeah, and it just happened to land at this point where Morrison and Quitely were just like, well, this is going to be the issue where Gene and Emma go into Professor X's head and it is just like like surreal like nightmares dreamscape for a full issue it's It's so good it's one of the best issues of x-men ever i really did you have you read the hickman giant size that is like a sequel to it it was so good i loved it i loved it particularly because again it was a perfect synthesis of morrison and claremont while also being something new right like that's what's beautiful about the hickman era is it's also doing something else but it was like, we're doing this homage to the Morrison issue, but they're here to rescue Storm, which is about as Claremontia a shift as you could have from them <laughs> being like there to rescue Xavier. I love that issue. Yeah, I mean, it's just a very scary idea. It's also very scary because the thing about evil twin plots is the fear of being replaced. It emphasizes, okay, here's where I'm going with this. Cassandra comes to deliver her baleful prophecy that humanity will be replaced by mutants. And then she underlines for the reader how terrifying the fear of being replaced can be by replacing Charles Xavier, taking over his life and ruining it. Yep. Which is really existentially scary. It's again, it's a changeling story. It's a fairy story. It's about looking in the mirror and you get swapped with the thing on the other side. It is fundamentally terrifying. I think that the way it resolves is absolutely genius. The way it gives Emma and Jean each an opportunity to solve the problem in a way that is perfectly in line with their character is genius. Gene, by absorbing Professor Xavier's mind, divvying it up into a tiny piece she gives to every mutant on Earth using Cerebra, and then tricking Cassandra into reaching out to all those minds and shocking her out of Xavier's body, and then Emma coming in with 
stuff the Shi'ar alien who has been made brain dead and is now just a shape-shifting protoplasm, turning it into a replica of Cassandra's body, pretending to betray the X-Men and getting Cassandra to hop inside it. It's a perfect beat for both characters. It is the moment that Jean and Emma develop any kind of respect for each other, which is the arc that's sort of been building there. It doesn't go well for them, unfortunately, because Emma's already begun her psychic affair with Jean's husband. But it's a very good beat for both of those characters that, much like the entire run of New X-Men, serves to distinguish Emma and Jean as people and underline for you who they are. Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, I I literally just read this this afternoon. It's uh, And so I, I, I'm still kind of on the high uh, just from how good that issue is. And one thing that I... I do want to mention that I I find really interesting is for a good chunk of appearances uh, through these issues, she's not even in her own body. She's walking around as just naked Charles Xavier inside this protoplasm monster. It's just a, a great visual. And I'd forgotten actually how quickly, because I, I, I hadn't actually read all of these straight through since I was in middle school. Uh, I'd forgotten about how quickly they established that Cassandra is in Charles's body. And so you just have this lingering like tension for so many issues when Cassandra as Charles just goes off into space and then everyone is just sitting around on Earth wondering, well, like, you know, assuming that he's off doing that, everyone's dealing with the fallout of... Charles coming out as a mutant on on national television, and then we as readers are just sitting here imagining what might be going on in space. And then eventually, when it just there's the hard cut where an issue just opens and it's just it, it is pandemonium. Oh, Cassandra has driven Lilandra insane and has caused a gigantic civil war genocide in space. Because all she wants is to destroy, and she knows that Charles loves Lalandra. <laughs> and this is one thing that I think is fun about Cassandra, because there's sort of the classic Terminator-esque motif of the unstoppable villain who will just keep coming no matter what you throw at it. And it's so disarming to have this as a kind of frail elderly woman. Right. Who you you'll you'll shoot. You uh you'll shoot her with a gun, you'll break her neck. She's gonna get back up. Yeah. It's it's incredible. I it, it it's just it's so strange. Yeah. And I, I can't get enough of it. And this is why I've been so disappointed that Cassandra has appeared so few times over the past 20 years. Well, and when she has, I think, has almost never been used well, which we'll get to, I guess, when we get to read her questions. <laughs> I just want to read the moment between her and Jean at Cerebro real quick, because this is oh, the please. dialogue that I will never quite forget. Jean says, I thought I'd be scared when I saw you again, but, but I'm not. There's only one of you in the whole world, and to tell you the truth, you don't stand a chance. You may be an expert on fear, isolation, loss, pain, and hatred, but you have no idea what friendship is. You don't understand the emotional mechanics of people who stick together and support one another. You just seem really vulnerable to me. 
Cassandra screams, shut up. I'll make you tear your friends to pieces. Where is Charles? All my brother ever does is hide from his guilt. I want him here to see this. Cerebra will amplify my thoughts tenfold and allow direct access into the minds of every mutant on this planet. I'll turn your people upon one another. Mothers will cannibalize their children. Lovers will savage their darlings. Hello, all of you mutants out there. It's time to become extinct. Can you feel me inside? It is so scary and i'm like what 13 reading this i'm like mothers will cannibalize their children (laughs) i mean i think morrison has always been especially good at writing these forces of primal evil yeah uh whether it's uh it's in the invisibles or whether it's it's dark side in final crisis and stuff like that just uh it's a thing they're really good at yeah and i think that it would be easy as we sort of said with Jung, it would be easy for this to be kind of, I think, a little sexist. And I don't know, you could make that argument. But I think that the fact that it's her versus Jean and Emma here is really important because it's not that she's female. It's that she's Charles's rejected devotional core. It's this very strange, interesting dynamic. And of course, what happens is Emma tricks her into the body of stuff, which they've reprogrammed to become a psychic classroom in which telepathic holograms of Xavier and Jean re-educate Cassandra from childhood in an effort to rehabilitate her because that is what the X-Men do. If all Cassandra wants to do is kill and destroy, the X-Men want to build and to give someone an opportunity. Now, they give her the opportunity by overriding her free will. So it's tricky but that's sort of the charles and gene way isn't it (laughs) but also right away like so early on in this whole story they throw some of their rules about morality out the window because of what they need to do to deal with her yeah yeah no like they don't usually kill people no like charles doesn't usually shoot people with a gun well that was her (laughs) okay okay That's what's you got fun that about there. that is it's that's Cassandra in his body shooting him in her body. I always forget that. Yeah. I, I think it's, well, just, it's, it's it's such an iconic shot, but it's not him. Cassandra's the one who fires the gun. Right. And then she's the one who says to be my X-Men, which is chilling. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> and and that's our big hero shot of the whole team. It is. And it's actually Cassandra. The thing that I love is the way it all comes around again and here comes tomorrow but we'll get there because there are plenty of questions about ernst from the readers so of course there are well listen joss whedon fucked that up and there's no two bones about it like he fucked that up didn't didn't it come up first in an austin issue yeah like they both (laughs) fucked it up um, it, but they sort of fucked it up simultaneously and then Austin didn't get to do his Cassandra Nova plot because Whedon had already claimed Cassandra Nova for his Cassandra Nova plot. But they both failed to understand, apparently, the ending right. of the Morrison Cassandra Nova plot. I think now's a great moment to pause for the Cerebro character file on Cassandra Nova Xavier. This is going to be relatively short. Cassandra, if you include, which I think maybe you shouldn't her appearances 
in astonishing as a projection of Emma Frost's mind or her appearances in the Sam Humphreys Uncanny X-Force as a future version of herself, the Owl Queen. Even with those appearances, she's only appeared like three Zaladanes. So this should be a pretty short character file. And then we will come back for more with Patrick Willems on Cassandra Nova, our favorite storylines and beats, and then reader questions from all of you. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Cassandra Nova, sometimes called Cassandra Nova Xavier, is the signature villain of Grant Morrison's new X-Men, and perhaps the only X-Men villain introduced after the Claremont era to claim a spot in the top tier of the line's rogues gallery. Created by Morrison and Frank Quitely, Cassandra is a mama dry, an astral being representing the antithesis of Charles Xavier. Embodied as his miscarried twin sister, she wants nothing more than revenge on the brother who tried to kill her in the womb. Her first act of evil, orchestrating the wholesale slaughter of the Genosian people, made her the most prolific genocidaire of all time. Cassandra debuts in 2001's New X-Men 114, the first issue of Morrison's relaunch. She's the principal antagonist of the first two arcs, E is for Extinction and Imperial. In her first appearance, Cassandra tracks down Donald Trask III, a dentist in Albuquerque who is the last known blood relative of Bolivar Trask, inventor of the mutant-hunting sentinel robots. Cassandra introduces herself as an evolutionary biologist and explains she has discovered a sobering fact. The human race will be extinct within four generations, supplanted by Homo superior. She escorts Trask to a long-abandoned sentinel factory in the Ecuadorian jungle, where she explains that the evolving wild sentinels manufactured there will only take direction from a member of the Trask bloodline. At Cassandra's urging, Trask orders the creation of two gigantic mega-sentinels, which she quickly dispatches to Genosha, the sovereign nation ruled by Magneto, home to 16 million mutant citizens. She then dispassionately executes Trask, explaining that she has the power to copy genetic structures and has already copied his entire DNA sequence for future use. Professor Xavier detects Cassandra using Cerebra, the new more powerful iteration of the mutant detector Cerebro. Cyclops and Wolverine are deployed to Ecuador, while Cassandra seizes the opportunity to seize control of Charles telepathically, making her presence known. Charles threatens to shoot himself, and she departs, for now. In Ecuador, Cyclops and Wolverine confront the Wild Sentinels and are captured alongside a mutant civilian, John, who they'd been transporting. Cassandra injects herself with a syringe, then mortally wounds John to test the Wild Sentinels now under her command. Wolverine breaks free, overpowering Cassandra, and after Cyclops puts John out of his misery, he threatens her. Wolverine realizes, though, that something is amiss. Why is Cassandra smiling? Off the coast of Africa, the mega-sentinels alight on the surface of Genosha, the former anti-mutant apartheid state that is now a flourishing mutant homeland. In the space of minutes, 16 million lives, over half the mutants on Earth, are extinguished. Charles watches the lights blink out in Cerebra in anguish. The only apparent survivor is Emma Frost, the former White Queen of the Hellfire Club, who spontaneously manifested a secondary mutation in the blast, her flesh shifting into organic diamond. At Xavier's, Wolverine has severed Cassandra's vocal cords to prevent her from further voice-activating the Sentinels. A healing factor is regenerating her at an alarming rate, though, and all that's containing her is a gravitational bottle Hank McCoy, the Beast, once invented to imprison the Juggernaut. Hank analyzes Cassandra and determines she is neither human nor mutant. She is, he posits, perhaps the first of a new species, a dramatic leap in evolution. 
Hank also confirms independently that Cassandra is right. A kill switch in the human genome is activating, and Homo sapiens will be extinct in the next three or four generations. As Wolverine wonders aloud why Cassandra looks like Charles, she suddenly explodes the gravitational prison from within. Overpowering the X-Men with raw telepathic might, Cassandra makes her way to Cerebra, where she declares her intent to seize control of Charles's mind. As she puts on the helmet, she has her neck snapped by Emma Frost, who had snuck up behind her. Cassandra begins moaning, her healing factor reviving her, but she's put down with a bullet to the brain by Charles. That night, on national television, Charles reveals to the entire world that he is a mutant and the Xavier School is a training ground for young mutants. In the following issue, after Hank realizes Cassandra and Charles have nearly identical DNA, Charles reveals he's actually Cassandra, who'd swapped their minds before Emma snapped her neck. She says she's Charles' genetic twin and that Charles tried to kill her long ago. Then she telepathically forces the new student Beak to beat Hank nearly to death with a baseball bat. In Charles's body, Cassandra then boards a spaceship to visit his lover Empress Lalandra in Shi'ar space. When Hank recovers, he tells the others what he's learned about Cassandra Nova. Charles is now trapped in Cassandra's failing body, which she had injected with various degenerative diseases in Ecuador. Jean and Emma enter Charles's mind and discover Cassandra's true nature. She is a Mama Dry, a creature of Shi'ar legend. The Shi'ar believe all intelligent life forms face down their own opposite in the womb not long before birth. This is our first experience of the other. Charles's mind was so strong that his Mama Dry was able to constitute a body for herself, becoming a gestating twin sister. He sensed her unnatural appetite for destruction and tried to kill her in utero. The fight between them knocked their mother down the stairs, and Cassandra was miscarried. For 40 years, the entity survived as emotional energy clinging to the wall of a sewer, slowly building a new body based on Charles's genetic structure. She believes that the whole universe is the womb she and Charles still inhabit together, and that no other life form truly exists beyond the two of them. In Shi'ar space, Cassandra has fully seized control of Charles's powers and driven Lalandra insane. Under Cassandra's orders, Lalandra foments civil war throughout the Empire, devastating planets. The Shi'ar Imperial Guard are then directed to Earth to exterminate the remaining mutant population. When Cyclops and the X-Men's newest recruit, the healer Zorn, throw a wrench in her plans, Cassandra returns to Earth to carry out her orders personally. Fighting her way to the Cerebra Chamber, Cassandra dons the helmet and attempts to force mutants around the world to kill each other. She does not realize that in her absence, Jean has discorporated Charles's consciousness and divided it among all the mutants left on Earth. The unexpected feedback from touching those minds expels Cassandra from Charles's body, placing him back inside it and leaving her desperately seeking her own. Enter Emma Frost, who appears with what looks like Cassandra's body. Apparently betraying the X-Men, Frost offers it to Cassandra in exchange for freedom for herself and her prized pupils, the Stepford Cuckoos. Immune to telepathy in her diamond form, Emma is able to trick Cassandra, who enters the body only to discover it's actually the Shi'ar agent Stuff, a shape-shifting artificial being who had been rendered brain-dead in the battle and reprogrammed by Emma to mimic Cassandra's DNA. Trapped within this new synthetic form, Cassandra finds herself regressed mentally to childhood and placed in a classroom with simulacra of Charles and Jean, who begin her re-education. Over the rest of Morrison's new X-Men, a character named Ernst appears in Zorn's special class of students requiring extra care. Ernst is a little girl with superhuman strength who has the physical features of an elderly woman. She's the constant companion of another special class student, Martha Johansson, a.k.a. No Girl, a mutant telepath who was reduced to a disembodied brain in a jar by the evil John Sublime. When Zorn reveals himself to be Magneto, driven insane by the power-boosting drug Kick, 
Ernst briefly joins his new brotherhood, but quickly questions his authority. The final arc of Morrison's run, Here Comes Tomorrow, takes place 150 years later. Cassandra Nova Xavier is now the leader of the few X-Men who have survived in a world devastated by Hank McCoy, whose mind, like Magneto's, was lost to kick. Actually, the aerosolized form of the ancient sentient bacteria Sublime. Don't worry about it right now. During a last-ditch suicide attack, Cassandra tells Martha, who now suffers from dementia, that it's alright to still call her Ernst, revealing that Ernst was actually Cassandra undergoing the rehabilitation process in Stuff's synthetic shape-shifting form. This future timeline is then erased by Jean Grey, who has ascended to become the White Phoenix of the Crown. Other writers, unfortunately, either ignored or simply did not understand the Cassandra Ernst reveal. Chuck Austin, who took over the title when Morrison left, reveals two issues later that Cassandra has apparently escaped during the attack on the mansion. Cyclops and Beast show no awareness of her transformation into Ernst. Ernst continues to be a background character at the Xavier Institute. In Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men, Cassandra apparently returns in her original body. It turns out she's just the psychic projection of Emma Frost, who's gone crazy because of post-hypnotic suggestions Cassandra placed in her mind back during the Imperial arc, preying on Emma's survivor's guilt over Genosha. This would suggest Cassandra wasn't actually tricked during Imperial? I don't know. This arc is bad, guys. It all leads to Cassandra manipulating Kitty Pride in an attempt to free herself from her containment within stuff. She does not succeed. Ernst, meanwhile, is just hanging out with the Academy X kids, I guess. An evil Cassandra Nova from a possible future, called the Owl Queen, or the Queen of the Revenants, is the primary antagonist of Sam Humphrey's 2013 run on Uncanny X-Force. Don't worry about it. Twelve years after her last present timeline appearance in Whedon's Astonishing Run, Cassandra Nova resurfaces in 2018's X-Men Red by Tom Taylor. Here she opposes the efforts of a resurrected Jean Grey, who's trying to found a new mutant state. Cassandra implicates Jean and her allies in acts of terrorism, and uses microscopic nano-sentinels called sentinites to control minds and stoke a dramatic rise in anti-mutant bigotry across the globe. The technopath Trinary, the X-Men's newest recruit, manages to reprogram a sentinite, and Jean implants it in Cassandra's brain, forcing the Mama Dry to feel compassion and empathy for the first time. Horrified by the scope of her myriad crimes against nature, Cassandra breaks down. Jean promises to help her make amends. Cassandra Nova has not been seen since, despite the successful founding of a new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Ernst hasn't been seen either. Will we finally get to the bottom of the tangled mess the post-Morrison Cassandra Nova stories became? I certainly hope so. She's a uniquely terrifying villain with the potential to become, via Ernst, a fascinating study in nature versus nurture. X-Men, X-Men. Welcome back to Cassie Nova Chat with Patrick Willems. Hey, happy to be here. Patrick, how are you doing? You're still hanging in there? You know, love talking about my favorite girl, <laughs> Cassie. Uh, Cassandra Nova is best girl. Look, she's got like some strong looks. Uh, she commits to what she believes in. I think she's great. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, she's very determined to do murder on a massive scale whenever possible. It is true. I will say, I keep hoping that at some point in the current era of X-Men, that Hickman and co. have a, a some Cassandra Nova like, story planned for at some, some point in the future. Because, I look, they've got a great thing going on with Krakoa, and 
Cassandra Nova could really, really fuck that up. Cassandra Nova would love to fuck it up. And I, I want to read that story. And I, and I, I think, I, and I think they could do something really interesting and exciting with her. I'm of two minds, which we'll get into a little bit in the reader questions in a moment. But first, I want to talk about Here Comes Tomorrow, which is the final arc of Grant Morrison's new X-Men. It is their final statement, essentially, on the X-Men and on their run. It confuses a lot of people. It's a strange way to end the run. It is an arc that takes place in an alternate future over a hundred years after the penultimate arc, Planet X. That then gets undone at the end. That then is erased by the end of the arc, right. So it's, in that sense, sort of an homage to the Age of Apocalypse, to the big classic one, Days of Future Past. But there's something very indelibly Morrisonian about it. There is an anguish to the world of Here Comes Tomorrow that is cosmic. I think that it comes down to the different anxieties that Claremont and Morrison were playing with in their stories. Claremont is very preoccupied with the Holocaust for understandable reasons. Claremont is Jewish. It wasn't that long ago. The metaphor, the allegories, the illusions are pretty obvious. Days of Future Past is mutants in concentration camps. It makes sense on that level. And it's a story about Kate Pride in the future as a Jewish freedom fighter going back in time to help her young self prevent the mutant holocaust from occurring. It's very specifically couched in that language. Morrison's anxiety has always been about nuclear weapons. Grant Morrison's parents were radical anti-nuclear activists. That is the milieu in which Morrison grew up. And Morrison's work is often preoccupied with the notion of the big bomb, like the bomb that is all-consuming and that cannot be stopped and that will permanently taint whatever it touches. And Genosha, as much as it evokes the Holocaust and is referred to in similar terms, and it's a genocide specifically, but it also is very much an evocation of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It is a nuclear strike, the way that it is portrayed, the way that it is drawn. Sublime, the secret villain of the entire Morrison run, is himself a bomb. He's a bacteria. He is an infection. And once you take the drug, it explodes inside you, essentially, and you can't get it out. The world of Here Comes Tomorrow doesn't feel like a dystopian future, the way that Days of Future Past or Age of Apocalypse was a dystopian present. It feels like a post-nuclear fallout, Mad Max, wasteland dystopian future. There's no society. There is no society except what people have carved out of the hills. Like, there is nothing left. Right. It's the world after the bomb. Right, right, exactly. Uh, so I reread Here Comes Tomorrow today for the first time since the issues came out. How was that? Um, it was interesting. I I was kind of baffled by it when I was like, I don't know. We were, what, 15? Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. It was a little intense. 
Right. It, it was like, because I was so into the whole Morrison run and I, and it, you know, I was sad it was ending. And, uh, and I will say, I still wish the story was longer. Uh, I still do get the sense that, uh, because, you know, Morrison had a, a falling out with Bill Jemis, the publisher of Marvel. Yeah, there was there was there were issues with editorial toward the end. Yeah, sure. have we you read that. Super Gods, Morrison's book? Uh huh. So you, uh, I, I vividly remember the part where they describe breaking the news that they're leaving Marvel and Joe Casada sprinting down a hallway after Morrison, <laughs> <laughs> having just heard, uh, trying to convince them to stay. But I mean, how hard? Because the minute they left. Casada went out of his way to, to undo everything. Undo everything they had done as it's, the architect of the X Men. It's so frustrating, but uh, I still get the feeling like that. Again, I, I didn't reread the entire Morrison run uh, for this right. episode. I, I would have if I had time. Sure, but you bounced to the Cassandra stuff, which makes sense. Exactly, but this ending, it, it still, it still feels like like slightly abrupt. Are are like a little bit condensed. If Here Comes Tomorrow had been like 10 issues, it would be stronger, but I don't know if people would have been willing to do that. You know, like in terms of, because so many people at the time were like, what the fuck is this? It was like, it's called themes. Like (laughs) (laughs) people still, I just had someone tell me, they were like, I couldn't get into that. So I just stop with Planet X when I reread. I'm like, it doesn't, I was like, you can't, the whole story doesn't make any sense unless you read Here Comes Tomorrow. No, I mean you. You need that, uh, like especially that ending with like with Scott and Emma. Yeah, yeah, critical. That's, that's so essential. And the ending with Gene in the white hot room. Yeah, and more importantly for this episode, the ending with Cassandra. Because the most shocking thing about Here Comes Tomorrow is that when we meet the X Men, their leader is Cassandra Nova Xavier, who has added the name Xavier to her name is Professor X now and is a good person who believes in Xavier's dream. Yeah. Which is shocking. She's back in her little safari gear from the beginning and she's carrying with her everywhere the orb containing the brain of no girl, Martha Johansson, who is a character introduced early in the run. She is the ultimate victim of Sublime's U-Men who were harvesting mutant organs and trying to transplant them into themselves to get powers. Martha's telepathic brain was removed from her body and kept alive as her body died. So she's just a brain in a jar. And throughout the run of New X-Men since... Cassandra Nova was tricked into the reprogramming suite inside the catatonic body of the shape-shifting alien stuff. We have seen Martha as the constant companion of Ernst, a little girl who apparently has progeria, looks very elderly, but is maybe eight. She looks like like the, the kids in Akira. Sure. Or like Benjamin Button. I mean, it's like right. a very, you know, it's she's incredibly aged, but is like an eight-year-old child. She seems to have superhuman strength of some kind. We're not clear on what her other powers are. And she is assigned to Zorn's special class, who become the students that we're most keeping track of throughout the story. Because in Planet X, when Zorn reveals himself to be Magneto, they become his new brotherhood. 
Ernst is the one who questions Magneto, who thinks that he is wrong, who sees through it in a way that some of the others don't early. And Magneto recognizes in Ernst that she is something more than he was led to believe. In Here Comes Tomorrow, Martha is still alive, but has Alzheimer's now. And Cassandra, when they make their final strike together as a suicide attack against Sublime's forces, says to Martha, of course you can still call me Ernst. He was my favorite painter. It's a name I'm very fond of. And somehow, even though it's given to you right on the page, no other writer seems to understand that the point is Ernst is Cassandra in Stuff's body being reprogrammed. And over the course of New X-Men, as she learns in the special class, it's Cassandra who has been taught morality and compassion, learning the value of Xavier's dream. So by the time of Here Comes Tomorrow, she has become her aged self again, but she is now, instead of the ultimate enemy of Xavier's philosophy, the only person who can carry it through in a world without the X-Men, because they're all dead. This ageless, rejected piece of himself that they managed to save. And it's kind of wonderful because it's proof that the Xavier School for Higher Learning works, that an education there can reprogram uh, the the most evil being they've ever encountered. Can make the most evil being we've ever encountered if you get her young and teach her good things and to love other people. She will. It's one of the more optimistic beats in Morrison. And it kills me that the writers afterward didn't understand it. And so Ernst continues to walk around as one of the students at Xavier's. But both Austin and Whedon establish that Cassandra Nova is still in the stuff body in like a jail cell at the bottom of the mansion. So I will say that when I first read this, I think, I don't know, I was a stupid 15-year-old. I missed this. <laughs> uh, it was. It wasn't until I. I. I can't remember when. At some point years later, reading on the internet something about this, and I was like, "Wait, what's this Ernst thing?" And then I was like, "Oh, okay. I didn't catch it reading these. You know, month to month. Uh, because because looking at it now, it feels like reading it today. It seems so obvious. But not only did I apparently miss it, every other like X writer there and listen I'm just gonna say age 15 I got it at the time so no excuse for all these people who were no no uh, Connor you were clearly a more perceptive reader than me honestly <laughs> I'm shocked that the editorial people missed it that's their job I, to keep I'm track of the stuff as to how it happened I really am maybe they decided that they liked having her as a villain but I don't think she's ever worked again as a villain in the same way I don't think she works at all in the Whedon arc, but I also think that's the worst arc of the Whedon run, in part because it's all about Emma Frost going crazy, which is just like my least favorite female character beat. It's just very, the whole thing feels very contemptuous of Emma as a character. Plus, 
because this is just where we go with women characters in Joss Whedon stories. Like Kitty's great struggle there is that she experiences the birth and loss of a child in a psychic fantasy. And it's like all about her mommy feelings. It's very fucking weird. I'm just putting it out there. It's weird. I will say I haven't read Astonishing X-Men since the single issues when it was coming out. If you loved it, do not reread it would be my advice. Okay. I I did love it at the time. Yeah. Don't reread it. I really am. I'm, I'm looking out for you here. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> look, I, I have so much Claremont that I haven't read to read. Yeah, read, first, that, anyway. read that instead. Read that but instead. I, I will say my reaction at the time to Astonishing X-Men was because Marvel as a whole had made such a concerted effort to undo uh, everything Morrison had done in their run and, and just pivot completely away to other stuff. At the time, I was so relieved to see just stuff from Morrison's run being used sure. again. And uh, because I was like, this, there were so many incredible ideas there. And then they went off in, in just a different direction entirely and tried to undo all of it. Well, and it's the last gasp before House of M kind of kills the X-Men for 15 years. I mean, exactly. I, again, despite runs like the Carry run or, you know, Zebwell's New Mutants or Size Furrier's X-Force or Size Furrier's Legacy, there's lots of really good stuff. But for me, the decimation period, the utopia period is just always going to be one of the weakest points of the X-Men story because if the mutants are decimated, I'm just not that interested. It just, it kills the thing that Morrison had done that had made X-Men feel modern and contemporary and alive. It undoes the progress. Yeah. It just sets us way, it's like, great, it's the 60s again. Didn't even just send us back to the 80s. Yeah, it sent us back to the 60s. That's what was wild about it. Yeah, it's interesting because this was a point for post-Morrison, I wasn't like as someone who has been consistently reading monthly comics i you know i've got my pull list i go to the comic store every week for all this time i was largely checked out of the x books for a long stretch of time like i read astonishing which pretty much kept to itself i read wolverine and the x-men just because i was a fan of jason aaron and wanted to see what he was up to um but during all of these periods i wasn't following uh, a lot of wait, actually, I, I I read Bendis's Uncanny, but a lot of these things like around the decimation and Messiah complex and all that I missed, and so it was interesting because for this I read uh, the Tom Taylor run of X Men Red, which is yeah. basically an eleven issue Cassandra Nova story. We'll get to that. We've got okay. a question about it because I I mean that's the only other notable time that she's come up, but. Uh, jumping into that and not having read any of the X-Books around that time, I was so thrown at the beginning just being like, what is the X-Men status quo here? Like, I had no—I genuinely had no idea that they had a school set up in Central Park. Yeah. It—it's uh, just—listen, House of X calls it the lost decade, <laughs> and that's all— I think I need to say about it, if I'm being real. And again, no disrespect to the writers. I think that honestly, it was a line-wide problem in that Marvel had marginalized the X-Men so dramatically that it was hard to make the stories about them matter. It just was. 
Which was crazy because Morrison's X-Men was one of the most impactful comics in terms of a story that mattered in a very, very long time. So it's just a, it was just a very strange, it was all a very strange choice. It seems like, I mean, the X-Books need to, at any given time, tend, just like be built around a one strong perspective and as the as the current era is, as the Morrison era is, obviously the Claremont era was. And I never knew what the perspective or take on the X Men at any given time over over all those years was. Like I, you know, there was something there was something going on, but uh, but I I never got a sense that that there was really like a like a vision for for like the mutant place in the Marvel universe. And thus I just mostly checked out of it. Same. I went to DC for a hot minute and then they fucked me with the new 52 reboot. So uh, <laughs> then I just stopped reading comics for a good minute there. And I'm backfilling now, honestly, a lot of the time because I felt betrayed. I did. Yeah. I mean, c- comics will always betray you. Of course. But when Morrison had pushed it all so far forward to be betrayed that, profoundly was really distressing yep let's get to some reader questions because we have a whole bunch and i think that they will help us talk about the post morrison stories and also just vibe with how much we love the morrison stories so (laughs) great that will be useful zach wilson writes hello connor and excellent invitee i just want to say again how much i appreciate the podcast look forward to it every week so cassandra nova i'm still a little confused about her i think if i have it right she is a mama dry a shiar concept of the psychic anti-self that everyone has in them but she only exists independent of charles because of his awesome brain energy that she created from him am i off base or is that correct anyway wow what a morrisonian concept something they could only work with them writing other question, have we seen other Mama Dry since she appeared? If we haven't, or even if we have, who do you think an interesting character would be to have a Mama Dry or completely independent anti-self? Lastly, how excited are you to see her under Hickman when she finally shows up? I hope your day is uncanny. Thanks again for all the hard work. So you're right. It is basically like mainlining Grant Morrison directly into your veins, the whole Cassandra Nova storyline. It has that like seven tailors of slaughter swamp from yes seven soldiers feeling we're oh, just like it. what the fuck is going on here but you got it right that is exactly what cassandra nova is in terms of other mama dry mike carey had a mama dry called urizen appear in his run as actually an ally unexpectedly of the x-men because it was fleeing the hecatomb which is an ancient Shi'ar weapon that was created based on Urizen's Mama Dry powers. They captured him basically and weaponized him to use as a bomb, like to use as a, it's very Morrisonian. The Hecatomb landed on the enemy planet and killed like 18 billion people instantly and absorbed all of their psychic imprints and then went insane and became a galaxy destroying monster and has been chasing Urizen now for thousands of years or something like that. Cable and Urizen sort of mind meld to fight the Hecatomb and then Rogue kills it because her powers have been amped up by Strain 88. We discussed this a little bit in the Rogue episode. She kills it, but she absorbs the billions and billions of souls that were trapped in it into her psyche and is real fucked up until messiah complex other than that the only mama dry that have popped up 
are in this kind of weird arc from the Sam Humphreys run on Uncanny X-Force. It's only weird because they're positioned a little differently. The metaphysics of it are still the same, but basically it's how Bishop got wrote back in after he had been left in the far future after failing to kill Baby Hope and then less Baby Hope. He ends up in a far future in the 68th century where a being called the Owl Queen has unleashed creatures called revenants on earth and they infect and replace people and it's a whole thing and bishop has become a revenant hunter and then he ends up going back in time because the owl queen has decided to try and trigger the great corruption that breaks the veil and lets the revenants through way earlier in the timeline and over the course of the storyline you find out that the revenants are just an english word for the mama dry and that the owl queen is the cassandra of the 68th century psylocke ends up killing her or sending her back to the future or it's ambiguous but it doesn't really matter that plot cassandra's fun in it She's very mystical in a way that she wasn't in the Morrison stuff in this, but you can chalk that up, I guess, to like she built a religion around it in the 68th century or something like that. My issue with it is that a couple of the X-Force team members, Psylocke and Storm and Puck, end up facing their own Mama Dry, and it's just like an evil twin of them. And I think at the very least, it should be an evil twin of them that's the opposite sex. Oh, it's not? It's not. It's just like another Psylocke who's evil. And I'm like, but this seems this seems weird just because, you know, Morrison establishes that, you know, the only reason that Xander Nova exists uh, as, as, like is a mama dry that sort of like grew to, you know, human Have a or body. Like final adult. Right. Uh, is because Xavier's like brain power is is so great. And these ones that become physical, it's because Cassandra, the Owl Queen, gives them physical form with her power. Okay. That's not the issue I have. The issue is that it's just like two Storms fighting and two Psylocke's fighting. And to me, it would be more interesting if it was a Jungian shadow self that was like Betsy's yeah. like male subconscious. Like, or, I mean, like, listen, right. uh, Jungian subconscious is very like gender binaristic, but you get what I'm saying. Like, I think that... If you're going to carry through the symbolism of the, the metaphysics, it feels like something to it do. It just feels like a missed opportunity because you can create a whole new character figuring out like what is the opposite of this person in every way. Yeah, exactly. And it should be the opposite of them in every way. And instead, it's just like evil twins, basically. And I just found it not as interesting. And they only last a couple issues anyway. Like it's not that big a deal that as far as i know is it austin had a plan to use cassandra nova when annie gazakanian leaves the school we see that carter her telepathic son is in communication with some kind of entity that was supposed to be cassandra nova but whedon had claimed the plot the hecatune plot that mike carey did was his replacement for a cassandra nova plot he wanted to do it was supposed to be a Cassandra plot and it became something else. His idea was that a male Mama Dry was going to impregnate Cassandra Nova and there was going to be like a horrible, like Cronenberg's The Brood, like Mama Dry <laughs> situation, I think. 
where she's just grow like like growing other people off of her like in the <laughs> like I don't even know where she was just like I'm just I'm I'm speculating just that she was going to give birth to a whole new generation of horrible mama dry creatures and that it was going to be real scary huh so that didn't happen oh uh Chris Claremont used Cassandra in X Men the End really yeah that's a trippy one if you want to check that out. It's Chris Claremont's potential final X-Men story. It was when they were all doing, like, Everybody the End. It was like a series of of alternate right. universe They'd bring books. back kind of like the definitive creators to do their To endings. do a, how would you end this story? Like, like Peter David did a Hulk the End and stuff like right. that. Right. X-Men the End is, I would say, in terms of 21st century Claremont, one of his better stories. But it's definitely very odd. And Claremonti. One thing that's very funny about it is that the Cassandra Nova X for the end is like stacked with an unbelievably hot bod and like a skimpy outfit and just like her old lady head. So it's just like I'm afraid to see this. Cassandra Nova's titties are sitting. Like it's very much it's an odd visual. Oh god. She like seizes the Phoenix Force, they have to fight back. Jean and Madeline have to join forces to stop Cassandra Nova. It's actually kind of fun. I'm just I'm I'm trying to imagine hot Cassandra Nova and it's like like my brain won't compute. Yeah, she's got she's got she's got a rack. Cuz she, like she's such a, a like sexless rack. being. Yeah, which is like the point. To right. the point where once she's in Xavier's body, he's walking around naked and like it's not sexual, it's just scary. Right. It's very like it follows or like one of those <laughs> where it's just like here's a naked old person, are you scared? Like yeah. it has that An energy Astro to film. it. Yeah, or an Ari Aster movie. Exactly. It's like, uh-oh. It's very hereditary, the whole Cassandra arc, frankly. So, in terms of interesting characters to have one, I'm obsessed with this fan theory that someone sent me on Twitter that, like, Malice is Polaris's Mama Dry, which I think would be so cool <laughs> and would really retroactively explain a lot about that storyline that was never explained. But I don't know. I, I think on some level... I prefer, I mean, this is why I didn't really love the Humphreys story, even though I think that run is fun. He does really fun things with Spiral, who's a character I've always really enjoyed. I don't like the idea of Mama Dries that aren't Cassandra, like, achieving physical form. It just makes her less special. Yeah, I feel like she should be unique. So I just kind of wave off that Humphrey's X-Force story because it was a future Cassandra Nova who did it and it was like her power and we're just not going to worry about it really because I don't really want to see that aspect of her parceled out to other people. Yeah, I I mean, the one way I could see it potentially working is if it was a story built around like one other singular instance of a Mama Dry where, I'm not saying this should be it, but it's like Apocalypse's Mama Dry. The Urizen plot in Carrie... Urizen explains, he's like, most of us are killed in the womb. In very rare circumstances, we get control of the body. And in rare cases, like mine, we don't die, but we're just dormant in the mind. And the Shi'ar scientists essentially pulled me out. It made it different. It wasn't, and he and Urizen did not have a physical form, was hopping into hosts. 
So it's just a, it, it made it didn't feel like it was undermining Cassandra Nova's whole clung to the sewer wall and built myself a body cell by cell thinking of nothing but the destruction of Charles Xavier or backstory, which I think is so fucking good. Right. It's still played by the rules. Exactly. So I wouldn't really want to see another one. Viet Dinh writes, and I hope I said that correctly. I am so bad at pronouncing names on this podcast, and I try I, to get them I all right. I don't think you are. Connor, you really put in the effort to pronounce like Well, with the character's names. names where I can research it, but like when it's someone who writes in, and I don't know how to say a Vietnamese name, for example, I am still not confident I'm saying Shang Koi Ma right. Karma. So anybody who speaks Vietnamese, please let me know. It's probably like bad Claremont Vietnamese to begin with. But, you know, like Margali Sardish, I spent a lot of time investigating that because that's not a real name. He just made that up. <laughs> that's how you would pronounce it if it were Hungarian Romani, but it's not a real name. Anyway, Viet Dinh writes, Hello, Connor and Patrick. First of all, I just wanted to say I'm a huge fan of both of you and your work. The 2017 X-Men video that you two did is what got me into X-Men comics. That's amazing. I know. That's great. <laughs> like, wow. Um, Thank you. Specifically with the Claremont and Morrison runs. Patrick's videos were what made me a comics fan, and this podcast has made me a huge X-Men fan the last few months. It seems a little poetic for me, then. This whole thing has come full circle with a discussion about our queen, Cassie. Anyway, my question this week is less about Cassandra and more about the Mama Dry. For such an interesting concept, I'm surprised that not more has been done with it. While they popped up a few times post-Morrison, it feels like writers largely don't know what to do with Cassandra and the Mama Dry and generally ignore them. To my understanding, the vast majority of Mamadrai don't manifest physically as living beings, and that was something unique to Cassandra, because Xavier has uniquely powerful psionic abilities. This makes sense, but why aren't there more Mamadrai out there? Wouldn't beings like Apocalypse or the Phoenix Force have a Mamadrai as well? Thanks to you both, Vinny. So, well, we all know that Connor is not a fan of the Phoenix Force as, like, its own sort of, like, personality and entity. But if we wanted to explain what's going on in Avengers right now as actually the Phoenix's Mama Dry, that would go a long way to assuaging my confusion about certain elements of that storyline. Just use Mama Dry as a retcon for like, oh, no, that, that was just their, their Mama Dry. Don't worry. Well, it's like a Doom bot, right? Like you right. can just kind of do that. Or it was a scroll. Um, No, I because, well, the the Phoenix right now, we don't have to get into it. Never mind. I just like in this event they're doing the Fe it. it Aaron keeps characterizing the phoenix as though it's a force of destruction or as though it's something parasitic, which is the opposite of what the phoenix is in the lore of the X-Men. So it's very confusing to me. In any case, I think that in Morrison's story, the opposite of the phoenix is sublime. That's kind of the, the as above, so below there, right? Is it's like sublime is this thing that is ancient and bacterial and coming up out of the earth. The phoenix is this celestial thing coming down from space. She represents life. He represents death. It's like a very, that's sort of how I see it. And Morrison loves stuff like that. It's very like new gods or again, a lot of the stuff in Seven Soldiers or even concepts that they've done in Doom Patrol and, and other things. Apocalypse, here's the bottom line. I just think most stories about Apocalypse are bad. I think that Simonson's Apocalypse stories in the 80s are fun. I think Age of Apocalypse is fun. And I think that the stuff that Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard just did with Apocalypse was really good. I'm hard-pressed to pick out any other story about Apocalypse that I think is particularly good. I mean, you're the one who's read them all, so I'm deferring to you. 
Yeah, I think that says it all, kind of. Like, I think that I just wouldn't want to read that. (laughs) I think that Apocalypse... Here's the thing about the Mamadry concept. Charles has this long connection to the Shi'ar. So it being this idea, this Shi'ar mysticism idea, is really special, I think, for him. It's also specifically about Charles's raw mind being turned against us in a very specific way. And so I think that if it were used to just create an evil twin character for someone else, it would be less interesting. That's my take. And I think that a lot of people don't use the concept because either they don't quite get what it's supposed to be or because they see the evil twin aspect but don't really interrogate deeper into what Cassandra represents, which is essentially hatred and self-importance and narcissism evolving into a sentient being to try and halt progress. It's kind of a bummer because the Moma Dry concept is so good that there's the impulse to want to do more with it. But if you do more with it, it lessens the impact of that initial instance of it. And so you kind of... It's so hard in comics, and uh, and I'm sure, you know, like 20 years from now, we, we'll have like a dozen Mama Dry stories, and it'll just be right. like uh, run into the ground. But maybe they really should just stay away from it. I haven't read anything since that has made me really feel like it's something they should draw on. And on that subject, Chad Raymond writes... The character of Cassandra Nova has sadly been brought back several times since her resolution in New X-Men and subsequent transformation into Ernst. Personally, I feel like the threat of Cassandra Nova is past. Her attack on Xavier was a one-and-done event, and other authors should have never paraded her for another round of villainy. It's painfully obvious authors following Morrison didn't do the reading. That said, under what context could you see Cassandra Nova Xavier return to destroy the mutant island Krakoa? Love the Cerebro podcast, Patrick's YouTube channel, and the first time you two hit the internet together in what to do with the X-Men movies. See you on Krakoa. Well, thank you. Here's how I feel about a return for Cassandra now. I want them to fix Ernst. I think that Hickman may want to fix Ernst because if you go back to the initial teasers, there was a big wall projection at one point that was like all these different X-Men characters with their names of them. And Ernst was in the lineup and we have not seen her on Krakoa. We don't know what's up with her. Actually, I was going to ask you, uh, since when was the last time we saw Ernst? Just in school, hanging out? Just in school, hanging out. And certainly since Hoxpox, we have not seen her even once. I think the way you fix it is... You say that the Cassandra that got out in the Whedon storyline that then becomes the Cassandra of X-Men Red, which we'll get to, which is the only Cassandra Nova story post-Morrison that I think is any good, frankly, is a piece of her or something that escaped the program. And you allow Ernst to be the character that Morrison intended her to be. And that maybe you find a way to bring those two halves of Cassandra back together or something like that. I want them to fix the storyline. Yeah, I mean, because by getting rid of the idea that Cassandra is, original Cassandra is Ernst, uh, they're still being rehabilitated as a student in school, then getting rid of that undoes this, like, 
massive idea, like one of the central ideas of Morrison's run, uh, which would is the idea of that is just a bummer. And Hickman having, you know, clearly read every single issue of an X book ever before coming in to do this. I like I'm, you know, I'm just putting words in his mouth now or just like making assumptions, but I imagine that he is well aware of the Cassandra Ernst stuff and is he's a fan of the Morrison run. We know that. Yeah, and would want to do it justice. Like uh and so so it really just ha- has to come down to like how do you like not undo Ernst and uh and not undo the progress there and the idea that she can be rehabilitated. Right, without ignoring the stories from Whedon and from X-Men Red where she's evil right because i mean on the one hand i i like the idea of a one and done great villain but also this is ongoing superhero comics and every remotely good idea will eventually come back and maybe can work again absolutely i want to see it done in such a way that morrison's arc for the character is validated and the ernst problem is sorted out on that subject eric john writes hi connor and patrick firstly absolutely love the podcast it's definitely the main reason i've started reading the comics again as a fan of connor's x-men insight since patrick's videos insert since before it was cool joke here i guess i've been excited to see patrick guest on cerebro my question is is a face turn for cassandra nova still a possibility i read somewhere that morrison intended cassandra to have a redemption arc of some kind and here comes tomorrow shows us an ending to that arc but is that still in the cards not saying i'd want it to be but i'm curious what y'all's thoughts are thanks again can't wait to listen to the episode so x-men red actually sets her back on that path by the end of it basically i have such mixed feelings about x-men red x-men red is far and away one of the better x-men titles of as i said an era of the x-men that i was not super crazy about however it's a bit of an odd story politically in the sense that it's about the rise of hatred and bigotry that was occurring all over the world at that time and that we are still dealing with, but it kind of lays the blame for it at the feet of Nano Sentinels directed by Cassandra Nova. Right. People aren't bad. It's just Cassandra Nova's bad. Cassandra Nova's bad. Right. I, I don't like that. I do like that Taylor nailed the core of Cassandra Nova from the Morrison story, which is that Cassandra Nova is hate, is pure hate, is hate for everything that is not herself. And that comes across really well. I'm just generally not into the very gentle gene of X-Men Red. It's not how I read the character, a gene who is that altruistic and nonviolent and pacifist is just not my reading of Jean Grey personally. But the ending is essentially the same ending as the one from the Morrison story. Using one of the nano sentinels that Trinary, the new character, has reprogrammed, Jean manages to force Cassandra to experience compassion and empathy for the first time. And Cassandra is devastated and the idea essentially is now Cassandra's on a path where she could become that character from Here Comes Tomorrow. And I appreciate the attempt to fix that, 
but to me it is less interesting than the Ernst concept. Yeah, I uh, I totally agree. I like that. There's two ways that I like Cassandra Nova. I like pure embodiment of hate, Cassandra Nova, or I like theoretical rehabilitation, Cassandra Nova, where in the body of Ernst and maybe like 150 years in the future, she'll be like a new Xavier, an adult new Xavier. Yeah, I don't need to see her rehabilitated now because then what she'll just be another xavier right we don't need that character but i would prefer to see i would prefer the weirdness of ernst being a student and we all know she's cassandra nova and none of the characters really know she's cassandra nova besides gene and charles and emma and the strangeness of that and the way it could become a problem like that's how you bring cassandra nova back on krakoa is you have the evil Cassandra Nova escape from Ernst. And then you have an Ernst storyline where Ernst has to like accept that she is Cassandra Nova. Like there are ways you could do this. That would be cool. I don't know that there's much of a future for the Tom Taylor version after X-Men red, because it sort of forces the change in her all at once, which to me is it's sort of like, I don't know, it's like chipping Spike on Buffy, except like turned up even more because it makes her feel things. Right, like, I don't know. Artificially. What, what happens? She she takes it out of herself and then she's back to normal? Yeah, like, I just don't see how it does the same. I don't see how it accomplishes the same task. But I will say that he writes a very scary, fun Cassandra Nova. I particularly like the issues drawn by Carmen Carnero and the ones drawn by Mamad Azrar. But it's, you know, it's pretty beautiful all the way through and there's a great bit where Cassandra walks into the school and a little kid student notices her and she's like oh you shouldn't be able to see me you're going to grow up to be a very very powerful mutant indeed and then she twists her hand and snaps the kid's neck and just drops him to the floor <laughs> she's like or not you know I feel kind of bad about how much I enjoyed that scene but I I'm just laughed like, oh, out she's loud back. it's horrible this is listen her. Listen, that kid's back on Krakoa now and he's fine. <laughs> but it was a very, it's a very funny, horrible, but also hilarious moment. Because there aren't a lot of X-Men villains who would just kill children. Exactly. Uh, Magneto's not going to do that. But she would. And so you're like, oh, here we go. Did you forget who you were dealing with? This is Cassandra Nova. She loves to kill children. She loves that. <laughs> a funny thought that I had when rereading the new X-Men issues, and I'm sure anyone who's reread X-Men stuff recently has also had this. Anytime anyone got hurt, I immediately just thought, oh, well, it's okay. You know, they'll just, uh, if they die, they can just, uh, you know, resurrect them uh, with the five out of an egg. And then I had to remember, oh, right. They, they didn't. Yeah, not for, not for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Nope, nope. Especially, especially at that time, because Quesada wouldn't let them bring anyone back. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. There's rumors that that was part of the issues that Morrison was having with editorial, but I don't know if there's any veracity to that. Just that the Gene storyline might have been a little more complicated at the end, but that it was like, kill her or don't kill her. You know what I mean? And it was right. like, okay, well. And Morrison managed to have their cake and eat it too a little bit because it was like, kill her but make her a god, which I think is the right thing to do with Jean Grey. And I have not been particularly enthused with any storyline that she's had since she came back, frankly. But I am waiting to see what Hickman has planned because I have faith that there is something. I'm intrigued to see what it will be. But yeah, I, I think X-Men Red is a great evil Cassandra and it does set her up 
for like the rehabilitation into a good person storyline again but I think in a less interesting way than Ernst and I would rather see us return to Ernst and find a way to explain away the other Cassandras we've seen it does make me wonder what would have happened if Taylor had had like a 40 issue run Instead of being cut off at 11 issues. It was cut off at issue 11, right? So we don't know what his plan was, if there was one, to do more with Cassandra. Was Gene going to be actively rehabilitating Cassandra through the rest of that book? Like, I have no idea. So it could have been very interesting. And I, I think Tom Taylor is a good writer. So I'm not... Tom Taylor, come on the show. (laughs) <laughs> Tom Taylor send us an email cerebrocast at gmail.com what were your plans for Cassandra Nova Brian Rail writes Brian I know you have told me on Twitter how to pronounce the name and I forgot again I'm so sorry hi Connor and Patrick I wanted to start and say that I just made the connection that Connor is the Connor through Patrick's video regarding what to do with the X-Men <laughs> movies one of my favorite videos of Patrick's by the way I've watched it multiple times and can't believe I've been a fan of Connor without realizing it before Cerebro started sorry for the slow realization on that one it is okay. First of all, I look very different now. I lost a lot of weight, so it's not necessarily a, an obvious, oh, it's that guy. But welcome. Now you've experienced the full Connor Goldsmith and Patrick Williams cinematic universe. The full arc. Congratulations. For my question regarding Cassandra Nova, is she a villain you'd like to see return as a major threat in the Krakoa era, or do you think X-Men Red was enough? With the destruction she brought in E.S. for Extinction on Genosha, is there a way to make her an interesting threat again that won't just retread the genocide? With the next biggest attack on mutants being Scarlet Witch's No More Mutants, we see that story being addressed in different ways, like with the constant references to the Pretender and even her trying to resurrect the mutants of Genosha. Is the same type of treatment available for Cassandra Nova? I'm unsure, but I don't think she's been mentioned within any of the Dawn of X books, although I could be wrong. Does she have a place among all the other threats to Krakoa in the form of hostile nations, Orcus, and post-human AI threats? As always, love the show. Keep up the good work. Best, Brian. As we were saying, I don't want to see them do it unless they have a really interesting idea for something new to do with her i do think that the evil cassandra would want to destroy krakoa obviously i also think that ernst cassandra is the more interesting path forward for the character it is a little conspicuous that she hasn't really been mentioned outside of the genosian stuff what's interesting is if you look at Hoxpox, I could be wrong, I have to go back, but I believe it's the Trasks who are blamed for that genocide in the data page. I think you're right. Because it's their technology that she weaponized. But also that might be a little bit of a nod to Moira and Charles and Eric not quite wanting to acknowledge that it was a piece of Charles's anti-psyche that did it. You know what I mean? Like externalizing the threat more. Right. In terms of a, a a potential future Cassandra story, I would like to see it, and I would and and as we've said already, like it would have to involve Ernst in there in a, a major way, just to reconcile the 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 two Cassandras out there. But also because I think Hickman is really really good at writing like villains on a really huge scale, like, like almost like mm-hmm. almost like you know mythological scale uh i'm a big fan of his secret wars series yeah there's a cassandra in one of those in the x-men 92 but she's just a clone of charles it's not the same character okay i didn't want to bring it up i could see cassandra potentially powering like a line-wide crossover like i don't see this being like a three-issue arc 
I feel like if she comes back, it has to be a a really, really huge story that will, like, alter the whole line. Yeah, and I think that the way to do it is to have it become about Ernst and about how vital it is that Ernst be rehabilitated and become the good Cassandra of Here Comes Tomorrow. I think that they're hesitant to do time travel plots right now a little bit outside of what's going on in Cable, but dealing with possible future evil Cassandra that can be averted by Ernst might be a way to do it. I just think that you'd have to give that character a spotlight she hasn't had. And I don't know, you know, I think the other option is to just pretend that the Ernst thing never happened. I just think it's such a, it's just such a huge bummer because it is so, I think, essential to the thematics of the Morrison run and everyone afterward just dropped it like a stone. Tom Crawford writes, Hello, CerebroCast. I love the podcast, and I especially appreciate you highlighting less popular characters because I always feel like they have the potential to be used in much higher stakes stories than the big name characters. While you've seen at least one possible future where Cassandra fights on the side of good, I think what Charles did to her in utero was unforgivable, essentially preemptively murdering her for the crime of bad vibes. So it makes sense to me that she could never work alongside him or support his vision for the future of the mutant race. My question, now that mutants have largely left Xavier's dreams of assimilation behind, is Cassandra open to the possibility of working with other mutants? After perpetrating a genocide, would any mutants be open to extending that offer to her? Love the show. Thanks for pulling me back into the X-World. Um, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, I mean, regardless of what Charles's goals are at any specific time, isn't Cassandra's priority mainly just making sure he's miserable and destroying everything he loves? Yes, right. So, like, no matter what he's trying to do, that was the other problem with the Owl Queen storyline. And this is not Humphreys's fault. It's just like Xavier was dead at the time because it was after AVX. And so Cassandra's like, ah, in this timeline, Charles is dead and I can do whatever I want. But I feel like if Charles is dead, Cassandra's just like, this timeline sucks. No one here is real. Is Charles dead in X-Men Red? Yes. Yeah. And so she's just like, well, Gene, you're the closest thing to a Charles, so I am going to destroy yeah, you. Yeah, you're his daughter, so I'm going to destroy you now, essentially. But that's the other thing is that, like, you say with other mutants— the key, and I think we got at this at the beginning, is unlike most foes of the X-Men, Cassandra Nova is not a mutant. She is an alien being from beyond space and time, born from the astral plane, and she seeks to destroy mutants because Xavier loves them, and she seeks to destroy everything Xavier loves. So I think that the only way, again, that you get her to a place of collaboration is by force, by reprogramming. So it's the Ernst storyline, which I think, the reason I think the Ernst storyline is compelling is because it raises so many moral questions. Is it an acceptable thing to do? Is it a moral thing to do? Particularly when Ernst essentially is a child now. And what does it mean that you're raising a child in this controlling way to ensure that she has a certain moral philosophy. There's a lot there that you could play with. I find we're just going to force you to be good with a nano sentinel in your brain less interesting. And I don't think that without an external pressure, Cassandra would have any interest in helping any project 
that Charles is excited about. No. <laughs> she, she'd never do it. There are a couple questions now that are kind of fun because they are callbacks to our video appearances together. Oh, really? A little bit, yeah. So first... Rob Secundus of Comics XF writes, Dear Connor and Patrick, do you think E is for Extinction is something that could work adapted to film, either in the MCU or as a standalone like Logan? If so, who should direct and who plays Cassandra? Follow up for Patrick, do you think that Mama Dry can take the form of sentient coconuts? Best Rob Secundus. <laughs> That's a reference to Patrick's YouTube channel, which you should watch. Uh, yes. Um, I, I really appreciate that. And... Um... Uh, you know what? That, that the 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 sentient coconut question is really really good, and um, I I I'm not sure I can answer it without giving away too much. So we'll just say good question. Keep your eye out for C is for Charles. Exactly. As far as movies go, I think E is for Extinction could work if you've like already as a an X Men sequel. You can't, like, start out by being like, we're going to kill all of these mutants that you've never met before, that, that, like, you have, like, that you don't care about, that that haven't existed up until now. See, I'm not sure I agree, because that's Ooh. actually exactly what Grant Morrison does. I, I mean, to, to be fair, we don't know the mutants on Genosha. We don't know any of them. <laughs> right, but, but we've at least had decades of, like, X-Men stories, because, so, like, it's a pivot point. It's, like... It's a, a it's a shift away from what we had been doing, uh, so it is a fresh start. But it's also a fresh start coming with like a lot of history, and and stories that we are familiar with. I'm not sure I would begin a brand new hard reset X Men franchise with E is for Extinction because I'm not sure it means as much if we haven't had stories before it. My feeling is this: I think that most lay people understand who the x-men are and will have absorbed enough from the fox franchise that they don't need the concept of mutants reestablished for them in the mcu i mean i agree with that part so i think it could work the bigger problem i think is not whether you know the characters i think the problem is you first need to establish the fear of the great replacement the fear of mutant children the fear of a mutant state you need to kind of establish that stuff first so that the destruction of genosha has a context i don't think we need to know the people on genosha because i think that emma is our survivor emma is the window into that the scene with negasonic teenage warhead they'd have to use a different character because now she's popular because of the deadpool movies in name only but you get what i mean but i think that you could do that scene and it would really work. Yeah, I think what makes it hard as a first movie is two things. One is you want the whole mutant menace thing to be something that's been percolating for a little bit first, which is going to be the MCU's problem with integrating mutants, period, is we don't have time to get all the way through the Claremont years if you want to get to the X-Men that people are going to want to see on screen which is mostly, let's be honest, going to be the Jim Lee team from the 90s. Like, that's what average moviegoers are going to want to see is those characters. And the other tricky part is you need to feel 
secure with Xavier before Cassandra Nova is really scary. Right. Like, Xavier has to be a character you trust before the body swap is as horrifying as it is. So it might be a good movie, too. That's that's what I'm thinking, because uh, in terms of the Genosha part of it, I think it's not that we have to, like, know the characters there, but I think we have to have a, an idea of what Genosha means and represents for the loss of it to mean something. Like, the analogy that I think of is, I think one of the major problems in uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens is there's a part when they destroy the planets that the Republic is on. That is the weakest part of that movie. Yeah. Because we don't know any of those planets or care. Unlike Alderaan in the very first Star Wars movie where you do care because Leia cares. Exactly. You have to give us a reason to care. Right. And so I think as like a movie too, after like we already know the status quo and there's this place, Genosha, where millions and millions of mutants live and Charles is a person that we trust and then... Movie two, we blow it all up. That could work. Wait, wait, the question, who should direct? Who should direct and who plays Cassandra? Uh, No, this is what finally gets Glenn Close her Oscar. Oh, that's a good pick. That's a good pick. I was going to say my two choices, it depends on the age they want for Cassandra. If you want to go like older, I would cast Amy Madigan. Ooh. Yeah, have you watched Carnival? I haven't watched Carnival. But but I've like I've always liked Amy Madigan since the 80s. Yeah, listeners, if you've never seen Carnival, which is one of the early HBO original series that unfortunately was cut really short. And so it's an incredibly brilliant first season and then a second season that tries to wrap up the show and doesn't really succeed. Amy Madigan stars opposite Clancy Brown in that show. And they are incredible. And she is terrifying. So she's my pick if they're going for someone in their 70s. If they cast a Charles like in his 50s and want Cassandra to look the same age as Charles, then I think maybe Carrie Ann Moss. Ooh. Think about it for a second. I mean, no, I don't have to think about it for it's a It's a much I... hotter Cassandra, obviously. Yeah. But I think that if they want them to look like siblings, I could see it being a little younger and... Carrie Ann Moss has aged in a very sharp kind of way that I think is really interesting. She was really great on Jessica Jones, Mm -hmm. the Netflix show. Now, if they plan to use that character in the MCU, then who knows? But so far, it's been complicated with the Netflix characters, with the actors being sometimes double cast in the movies. Like Alfred Woodard randomly being wasted in one scene in Age of Ultron, which makes you want to die. No, it was Civil War. Was it? Yes, it was Civil War. She was upset about Age of Ultron. Yeah. She was like, my child died in Sokovia. I'm like, this is what you're doing with Alfred Woodard? It's very strange. I've got to say, I've thought about who should direct an X-Men movie a lot, and I don't really have a strong answer because, again, a lot of the thing is because... Oh, pause, though, real quick. Pause before you start. If the rumors that they want to cast Xavier Black are true, then Alfred Woodard should play Cassandra Nova. I have not heard those rumors but it's it's just a rumor no one knows if it's true at all but it is something that has been floating around if they do do that then alfred woodard's cassandra nova and that's my final answer but (laughs) assuming a white cassandra nova amy madigan is my pick jessica lang would also kill that like there's a couple people who i think 
could really yeah just who are or older older actresses, actresses who can terrify you yeah who aren't afraid to be ugly and scary in that very specific way yeah do you have a pick for director I'm not good at directors, frankly. That's like your gig. I know. I usually am. But X-Men is also so tricky because it it can and should be so many things. And I'm also always hesitant to to say I want a director to make like a Marvel movie because it kind of means they're going to be slotted into a machine where they'll only have so much control. Right. And I'm like, I don't I don't necessarily wish that job upon my favorite filmmakers. Right, I'm like, I don't necessarily need to see Ari Aster's E is for Extinction. Like, I would be intrigued by it, but I would rather Ari Aster go make whatever movies he wants to make. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Without Disney telling him how many naked old people are allowed to be in the film or how many decapitations or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would like it if it, if he still found a way to like hide them in the shadows in the background and, and Look, Foggy Ari Aster's E is for Extinction would be real good. I'm just saying. But it would. I don't know that I would want to, to put an artsier director into that grind. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a good directorial choice, I don't think. I would be interested, potentially, to see a woman direct it, because I think that Jean and Emma and Cassandra are sort of the actual three prongs of that plot. And I think, particularly if you were doing Emma in the new X-Men, like, high fashion, almost naked outfit... Where it's like stripper couture, kind of. Can you do that in live action? Probably not. But if you were going to, I would want a woman to direct the movie. A one hundred (laughs) percent. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it it would be because uh, you know, there are you know, X Men is built on you know an allegory. Uh, It would be nice to see just anyone who's not a straight white man well right that's it. the other thing is like i i feel like we've seen enough straight white men direct the x-men plus brian singer who's not straight but should never be allowed to direct anything again exactly actually like that's part of it for me is i think that the fox x-men movies are really dismissive of women generally and brian singer is that kind of gay who just like has no interest in women at all as people emanates off those films in my opinion and since to me what made x-men special and what did make x-men the biggest book in the world was those claremont women you know it doesn't have to be a woman director but someone who's going to at least give a shit about that i think would be a good choice yeah, I mean, I feel like that goes without saying. Like, th- I mean, there are many problems with the X Men movies that exist, and, uh, and and one of them is that the female characters get just they suck. S- s- like, yeah, there's like, I mean, books could be written, and Famke Janssen's doing her best, but like, the material is not there, honey. Yeah, uh, I, I mean. Storm just... I mean, yeah, Halle Berry the, 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 is the, is trying, but it's not... There's nothing. There's, she has there. no material to work with. Nothing. Yeah. Last question. Lucas Seabal writes, Dear Connor and Patrick, how would you revise your pitches for X-Men franchise films now that the banner falls under Marvel and with the success of Disney Plus as a platform? Could we have an X-Men film series and also a TV series that explores the student life at Xavier's or on Krakoa? Could Cassandra Nova be a main antagonist, or would that require too much context to understand? 
Big thank you to you both for getting me back into the X-Men and convincing me to pick up Grant Morrison's new X-Men run. Your conversations on Patrick's two videos made me remember what I love about the X-Men, and your podcast recontextualized the minority metaphor for me, a flat-scan person of color. And getting into Dawn of X and Reign of X could have been overwhelming, but I had the Cerebro podcast to let me know not to worry about it. Thank you again so much, Lucas. Well, thank you, Lucas. That's very sweet. If it helps... You know, the term flat scan on this podcast, it does refer to straight men generally, but I think it sort of is straight white men, kind of. Like, I, I feel like if you're not white, you're probably not a flat scan, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Open the discussion on the Discord. We can we can talk about this. It's okay. The Discord. Patrick, you're a flat scan. What do you think? I'll be the resident flat scan here. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do I think? Um, uh, About the term flat scan? Or and how I use it, I feel like it should specific. Well, first the flat skin thing. I I feel like it's specifically like cis hat white men. Yeah, that I'm talking about when I say flat scans. That's how I take it. Yeah. So just so Lucas, don't don't sweat it. You're not a flat scan. You're like maybe like half a flat scan. You're you're not. I don't even feel insulted by being called a flat scan. No, that's the point. It's funny. I I love my flat scan fans. Like I'm glad you're here, and I hope you're having a ball. Um, as for the question, what do you think, Patrick? So, I mean, we made our pitches again in 2017 when we were trying to figure out how Fox or a potentially Disney, if they got the rights back, should relaunch the X-Men. And at the time we were saying a hard reset in its own universe, but yes, not MCU, but we just realistically, they're not going to do that. The question about how to introduce mutants and the X-Men to the MCU is something that, you know, there are like a million hours of YouTube videos about this topic. People have covered it so much, and I don't think uh, I can give you an an answer in the next 30 seconds. Uh, I will say I'm glad that I'm not in charge of figuring that out because it seems seems difficult. seems tricky. seems hard. Because the big thing is, we don't want to see, we, we don't want to go through the same stories where people find out about mutants, and they're scared about these, like, weird new things that, are, that, that, that seem dangerous, and then we, sh- then we see Charles Xavier founding, like, a ragtag core X-Men group. It's like, no, we, we, we got so many movies of that, we want to skip to the point where the X-Men are the X-Men that, right, that we see. Fun. And like, yeah, in, in the fun current comics, uh, and that's what we want to get to. And I mean, in terms of how to introduce that, it's uh, it's tough. I, I also, and um, I think, Connor, you might agree with this. I don't really care that much about seeing the X-Men interact with the Avengers. I hate it and never want to see it particularly, right? My feeling on this is at this point, we're pretty confident they're going to integrate them into the MCU proper. I think that the only true path forward is to do a retcon. They were always here. And there are a couple ways to do that. One is to do it via Wanda, which as you all keep emailing me and I haven't watched it yet, so please stop. That there are hints in WandaVision that that may be what's going on. So give me a minute to catch up on the show, please. I think without spoiling anything, I assume people are proposing a reverse decimation. Correct. And here's my thing with that. MCU Wanda innocent. I'm not saying that MCU Wanda has done anything wrong. Comics Wanda, though, is evil. And I don't want us to have to thank Wanda Maximoff for anything. 
she can take a long walk off a short pier. I think it would be really funny if uh, WandaVision ends with her just saying so many mutants. Like all the mutants, right. And they haven't, or, like, or, mutants or actually, don't exist. here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. She pauses. She goes, no, more mutants. <laughs> like you add a comma. And then people say, what are mutants? Right. I just, I don't know. I'm so anti-Scarlet Witch in the comics that it's hard for me to be like, yes, let Wanda be our champion. Like, that makes me want to die. However, if it helps us undo the terrible retcon in the comics that they're not Magneto's kids and not mutants, then let's go for it. Because that needs to be undone stat. And I do feel like Hickman is building towards something there with the Pretender storyline. Here's what I like, though, and this was not my initial idea. It's something a few people have suggested, but this is what I would do if it were me and I were going bold. Open with Krakoa. Open with Xavier's speech from the beginning of House of X. While you slept, the world changed. And then you cut to various scenes, iconic moments throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you post-production CGI in Storm and Cyclops and Wolverine and Jean Grey. They were all there. Emma Frost was there talking to Tony Stark at whatever board meeting. These characters were there. We just forgot about them because Xavier or Moira or somebody did a mind wipe and all of the movies we've watched occurred during that mind wipe and now it's being lifted. The mutants are here. They've always been here. And Krakoa has been established and that they were going stealth while they established Krakoa. I think that would be a genius way to do it because then we don't have to do the problem, which is building the X-Men, which we simply don't have time to do. No one wants to watch 10 X-Men movies that are just first class again. Yeah, of course we don't. Again, like as we all like... People didn't even really care about X-Men in the comics until you got to giant size. Right. No, the 60s X-Men was a failure. Right. And I don't want to see, like, multiple movies based on that stuff. You know, you know what, Connor? Uh, I think that's a great idea. I am all for it. Yeah, I can't take credit. I forget who first said it on Twitter, but I was like, that's exactly what you do. Just skip to the good stuff. And then once they're there... Skip to the good stuff. Yeah, uh, and then let's just tell X-Men stories. It doesn't have to be directly to Krakoa if that feels too ambitious, if you want to see where Hickman's going with it first or whatever. But you could at least have, we've always been here, we had to go underground for a minute, we made you all forget about us, but now we're back. Yeah. And then you just trust that the general public know who the X-Men are. It's not a hard concept to understand. And let's please not do... uh an Avengers versus X-Men movie because I just don't care. Here's the problem. They are going to do it. Of course. Because Avengers versus X-Men, the trade sells like gangbusters already. And it will only sell more if it's also the name of a movie. That's why we have a civil war movie. That's why like that is, that's the synergy. That's the brand synergy. So they, I know absolutely are going to do it and it's going to be annoying. I just choose to be completely smooth brain about the MCU. Like, it's not worried about me, so I choose not to be worried about it. That that makes sense. I just hope that it doesn't affect what's going on in the comics because this is the best the X-Men comics have been in 30 years. So... Exactly. Line-wide, anyway. So don't... Just don't fuck with it, please. <laughs> yes, I concur. Well... 
Patrick, is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we start to wrap up? I don't think so. I've I've had a great time, you know, talking about our girl Cassie, uh, the fun times that we had, uh, you know, lots of good Ernst talk. Yeah, a lot of Ernst in this episode. She's in the cover art because I'm catty that way. I was like, remember her? Of, of writers? Course. Connor, I would expect nothing less. Yeah. Well, also, she's holding no girl, and it's like the brain jar is over the O in Cerebro, which I thought was cute. <laughs> That's good. There aren't that many full body shots of Cassandra to begin with, so my cover art was sort of limited. No, I, I think we've covered everything. Well, Patrick, thank you for being my guest. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and elsewhere on the web and plug anything you want to plug? Of course. Uh, you can follow me on all the social media platforms at Patrick H. Willems. And uh, look, the main thing I do is make these long YouTube video essays over at youtube.com slash Patrick H. Willems. And uh, go over there. Watch them. Connor's in two of them. I am. They're great. Watch the extended cuts, though, because there's more of me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. And you can send in your questions, comments, and feedback to cerebrocast at gmail.com. Next week's episode will highlight Alex Summers, Havoc, with guest Allison Senecal, bookseller extraordinaire. You may know her as Malicious Glee on X Twitter. She is a delight and she is coming on to talk to me about our precious angel baby that no one else likes so if you have havoc questions feel free to send those in in the meantime thank you so much as always for your support you can join the conversation at the cerebro discord for listeners which is linked on the cerebrocast.com homepage. and until next time everybody thank you so much for listening and bye x-men x-men in the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is... X-Men. <laughs>